All that I can hope is you take me with you when you go. I guess I should have known I can't leave with you when you go. It's, I don't know, it's, it's been interesting kind of capturing these little points of view from all the different units yeah. and eras. I mean, obviously, if we did this forever, we could get everything. But, yeah. you know, we've a little bit of, you know, Canadians pre-Medusa, pretty decent amount of info about Medusa, both from the Canadians and the, um, the SF dudes. guys. Yeah. Uh, the one, the interview with the lab driver yeah, was a really good one. The battle of the white I mean, school. He was, yeah, with the, he was in the lead lav, pushed into the white school, like the point of the spear of the objective. Yeah. Like his, he's like, yeah, and then the vehicle behind us got hit by a recoilless, and then we pulled back, and they got hit by a recoilless. I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah. yeah, those dudes got their ship pushed in for probably a couple, you know, for that day. That 48 hours, days, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just some really, just some really cool perspectives. And then, you know, and then here we are with... With with Colonel Fulbert Colonel, <laughs> old Colonel, old Colonel, old Colonel. <laughs> old Colonel. <laughs> uh, you need to go by you go by Trey Rutherford, right? Yep, Trey Rutherford. Trey Rutherford. 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 Oh man, God, you caught me early on that one. Yeah. And uh, so, and Trey was the battalion commander for First and Twenty Third Infantry uh, out of Fort Lewis, Washington, uh, to which Luke and I were attached as part of. I guess it'd be Task Force uh, Tomahawk yep. in uh, 2012. So we're sitting here with him at the United States Military Academy of West Point. <laughs> so it's actually kind of a very oh, yeah. cool opportunity, which we very much appreciate the hospitality and inviting us out here and sitting down with us in the, this is the nineteen sixty the class of 1963 conference room. Correct. Yeah. Pretty, pretty wild. A lot of history here. So. Yeah. I oh, mean, yeah. That's one of the things driving around earlier, just... Oh, this is where X, Y, and Z happened, and this is where you know the the history in the Northeast is always fascinating to me because, especially, I mean, if you get west of the Appalachian Mountains, if it's two hundred years old, it's old, you know. And if you get west, way out west, you get in the Rocky Mountains. If it's a hundred years old, it's old. So it's kind of cool to be around here and see stuff that's three and maybe even three fifty. Eighteen o two is when this place started. So really there's stuff wow. here from eighteen o two on. So yeah. And that's uh, that's just the military presence, you know. Henry Hudson was working his way up the river. I don't know, probably three hundred fifty years ago. So it's it's cool. It's a neat neat place. Well, it's different. I mean, I've been in the west western United States the last five years. There's no history like that out there. I yeah, mean, history out there started in the nineteen hundred, basically nineteen hundreds, really. Yeah, I mean, everything in Alaska is nineteen fifties <laughs> and on. Like, we don't get anything kind of that kind of history. Ha- happy to get a new road up there. Yeah. <laughs> you did some time in Alaska, didn't you? As a kid, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Uh, well, uh, Trey, the way we kind of open these things up is give you opportunity to kind of tell us a little bit about your background, how you came to join the military, um, why you chose 
infantry as your branch and then kind of you know a little bit of background of your previous deployment history and kind of leading us up to this uh our deployment in panjway in 2012 yeah so seventh generation uh army guy um so since about 1856 mm-hmm. somewhere in there that's when kind of my family started in the army side um you know wasn't predisposed to to be an army dude um you know, but hearing the stories from my father and my grandfathers uh, and their grandfathers, um, you know, I kind of knew I was predisposed towards being in the military. Sure. Um, kind of wanted to be a submariner, uh, but when I visited Naval Academy, they looked like Popeye, so I was like, nah, I can't do that. <laughs> so, so I ended up coming here to, to West Point um, in 1989 when the Soviet Union still existed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so like a lot of us that came then, we were all focused on, hey, at some point we're going to have this epic battle against the Soviet Union on right. the plains of Northern Europe, you know, picturing tactical nukes and sure. tank formations and all that type of thing. But, uh, you know, my yearling year, my sophomore year here at West Point, the Soviet Union disappeared. Mm. Um, like, holy crap. You know, what do you do what, now? What am, I, what am I here for? Yeah, right. Um, you know, so a lot of people were doing some soul searching. And of course, President Clinton said, hey, we're going to reduce the army by 50%. Deployments are going to go down. Uh, and then I graduate. Uh, and the only thing I ever wanted to be was an infantryman. Um, you know, my father had been an infantryman in, in Vietnam. You know, my grandfather had uh, been a combat engineer with infantrymen in World War II and Korea and Vietnam. Um, I mean, like there's no other branch that really you, you, you heard it here folks there's, there's no, no other branch, branch. <laughs> <laughs> i mean and I, you know later in life i commanded armor brigade so right. yeah. whether it's a you know infantry formation or infantry style of leadership it has a huge impact across yeah. the army but sure. you know i came out of here and um went to to europe um not sure what was going to happen you know so my my first duty was in first brigade first armor division um and everything was disappearing in Europe. They were downsizing. The Soviet Union wasn't a threat anymore. But I ended up spending 32 or 36 months deployed while there, um, doing the first uh, NATO partnership for peace in Poland. Okay. Um, okay. Holy smokes, you know, trying to inject some U.S. Um, oh, thoughts there. Poland after the, war, after the wall fell had to have been uh, rough. Whoa. Yeah. Um, you know, when we came across the border, it was my first deployment, and like literally the poles lined the entire highway eight deep with homemade American flags, mm. you know, all the way to Poznan, where we were doing the first partnership wow. for peace, which, uh, mm. you know, was trying to get them to want to come over to the NATO side. Uh, it's funny, I go back there as a brigade commander in my headquarters near Poznan, mm. and uh, being able to communicate to the poles, holy, holy crap, if you can you feel how much your country has changed yeah. in the last, you know, 28 years to them, you know. They, they don't see that. So they're right. very excited to hear that. Uh, so I got to do that. Got to spend uh, about nine months on a UN mission separating the Serbians from the Macedonians mm-hmm. on the border down there, stopping black market smuggling. So got some experience with the UN. Um, I do another partnership for peace in, uh, um, in Czech Republic. Uh, again, trying to get them to, to come into NATO. Uh, and then final thing as a lieutenant, um, Got to be a scout platoon leader in, in Company XO in Bosnia and I four. So, okay, yeah. um, you know, one of the first units going across the Sava River Bridge and trying to figure out how to separate belligerents mm-hmm. uh, with no no uh, guidance and that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, went to the Aviation Officer Advanced Course after that because uh, you know 
need to do something different. Um, Fort Rucker. At beautiful Mother Rucker. And <laughs> yeah. The ugly corner of Lower Alabama, a.k.a. <laughs> UCLA. UCLA. Yeah, that, that was uh, interesting, especially being the only uh, instrument down there. So yeah. that, that was good. Um, and then got to go to the 82nd where I spent, um, you know, about four years working on division staff, brigade staff, and being a company commander where we didn't deploy a lot, but we trained our asses off. And, and you know, it's strictly about standards and timelines and being ready to fight wherever the, the country. So it kind of inculcated in me at that time, really the, the importance of being ready. Sure. Um, and, and is that where you, that's where you, that worked with Rusty when he was a conventional officer. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yep, yep, yep. So we're, we're both in three, five Oh five. I think crazy. he was a, AT platoon leader when I was a company commander there. <laughs> we, we we didn't see the stardom then, but we knew it was there under the surface. Yeah. <laughs> was he just as was he just as crusty back then as he is now? He was a crusty old guy that like like if you had to predict if that was the dude that was going to do that he was doing in the future, that was probably not who you'd have picked. But <laughs> but that's you know yeah. after there I did uh, I spent a number of years down at GRTC. So I gave up uh, company command, uh, went to GRTC, and three months later, nine eleven happen oh. um, so i just give up uh, company command i'm stuck down in grtc doing 22 rotations just over and over and over mm. again um which is kind of the interesting thing because you know what i learned down there sometimes the the, the, the shitty soldier ends up being the hero in the platoon yeah mm-hmm. um you know so if we can you know we're kind of defined by the mosaic of the soldiers and the leaders that we're, we're given but if we can like lift everybody you know sure. uh, a little bit it's amazing what folks can achieve um you know a threatened branch while i was at grtc i'm like hey there's a war going on can you get me somewhere where i make a difference or i'm gonna leave the army and go be a bus driver or something like that <laughs> and uh so they sent me to guantanamo um so got to spend a year in guantanamo doing some interesting stuff sure met my current wife down there in guantanamo she was not a detainee uh, <laughs> <laughs> Did, uh, thank, thank you for clarifying. Yeah. <laughs> did a couple of deployments over to Iraq, you know, at the right after the time of the invasion and the year after that, um, you know, working in, in counterterrorism and uh, detention and interrogation task force over there. Um, and then, you know, came back for CGSC, so got to spend a year at Fort Leavenworth kind of figuring out what the hell I was going to do. Sure. Um and then got to go back to the 82nd where I got to be a Brigade S4, Battalion S3, Battalion XO, Brigade XO. And then the Army decided to send me to Europe where I got to command a company of two para. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, during that time, feel great time as a, as a major in the 82nd. I uh, went over for the surge in 2006. We did a 16-month deployment to Sodder City. Oh, uh, but that um, was a hell yeah time. Which is where I first had my interaction with 123 Infantry, which mm. they were the shit yeah. in Iraq. Like, they made every other unit I came in contact look like absolute garbage. I mean, in mm. Ranger Regiment, Special they were wired tight. They had a guy named Van Smiley, who was a battalion commander. And, and just the, the presence that he brought and that exuded through the unit, I'm like, holy crap, I want to be part of that. Um, were they already on strikers then? Yeah, they were strikers then. Okay. I think that was their second deployment at the time. Okay. Um, you know, and I got used to having different companies attached to the battalion and how do you integrate them into a team. Mm-hmm. Um, and then got to do that uh, thing um, in, in Europe uh, with two para. So got to command them, deploy them down to northern Kenya. You know, on the Somali border for Operation Grand Prix, um, interesting uh, 
experience with the Brits. I was supposed to deploy with them, the Hellman, um, uh, but I got selected to command my own battalion, which ended up being one, two, three. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, which when I showed up, it was not the battalion that I knew before. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when did you show up to one, two, three? Uh, I showed up there in 2010. Some, yeah, okay. somewhere around there, and took command like early, yeah, 2010. Um, it all kind of bleeds together. Now, sure, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They had just come back from Operation New Dawn, where they were doing like, uh, yeah, fucking nothing. Basically. House, how you know, school makeovers and all that right. type of thing, and you know, st- still had the, still had some of that sense of history of mm-hmm. what I'd seen during the surge, um, mm-hmm. but they had just kind of dropped down to the lowest common denominator. So it, it was it was a tough fight to, you know, we weren't sure what the battalion was going to do, but I knew we were going to get called to do something. Sure, so how do yeah. we get ready for that? Um, so initially it was, you know, how do we focus on near peer fight and, right. you know, mm-hmm. make everything as tough as humanly possible. And then the rest of the brigade was got notified that they were going to deploy to Afghanistan and we weren't. <laughs> um, so they started thinning out one, two, three. Oh, um, yeah. And... Then we got hit with, hey, you're going to do village stability operations. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, TAS organized the whole battalion to, to do that stuff and sent PFCs to Berkeley to learn about farming in Afghanistan. You mm-hmm. know, broke up teams to go all over with first group and seventh group, took uh-huh. all the leadership down to get certified on that. And um, and then like 30 days before we were supposed to deploy, we got um, remissioned to, to be a battle space owner and mm-hmm. and in uh rc south which is totally different than me in a vso so yeah 30 days before i had to re-task organize the entire battalion back uh, into platoons and yeah. companies but we had ruthless training before then ruthless understanding yeah. of what the standard is going to be mm. so that was painful but it wasn't wasn't that bad um so that i guess like right before your ntc rotation is when you found out you were going back to being a battle space owner no Really? It after. was after. So we did VSO garbage in at NTC. Wow. Oh, yeah. Like, mm. Yeah, that was interesting. That's how, quite a shift. How did you, I mean, how did you handle that from from a, the battalion commander's perspective? Did you just, like, hammer down on your, on your uh, company commanders, your PLs, your NCOs, like, or did you? So you got to be very clear and message sent and message received. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, so, you know, like I mentioned before, you know, basic standards and discipline lead to to to, to the the ability to achieve success in anything else you want to do. So, I mean, pretty ruthless um, when it came to raising people to their full p- potential. Right. Um, very clear on expectations with platoon leaders. Spent you know hours and hours and hours with platoon leaders. So the, there was like zero mills between you know what they thought I expected and right. what was expected yeah. tons of time with first sergeants and company commanders and battalion staff and all that type of thing. That's where we developed like, you know, the Tomahawk red lines and, you know, the SOPs and that type of thing. Um, so when yeah. you guys got remissioned to do the battle that you knew you were going to Panjway and that area as soon as you got that yeah. switch and mission. So the, like I had the dudes, um, like I, you know, they're getting ready to do platoon live fires. Um, like y'all were heading into NTC. Mm-hmm. One, two, three is getting ready to do platoon live fires, but I had to go get eyes on the battle space. So I went over there and, and, you know, wow. Pangeway is a little bit different than, you know, a lot of places that I've been before with the great bros and the great putts yeah. and the micro terrain and 
and all that type of thing. So, you know, I'm calling back and they're conducting platoon live fires in three foot of snow, mm. you know, so we couldn't replicate right. uh, grape rows and all that. So I'm like, find the area with the most deadfall. I want it to be like impossible to move through. Right. Yeah. It's got to be the most challenging shit these dudes have ever seen. Um, and there's no freebies. You know, I want, you know, there's got to be casualty play. There's got to be everything that's mm-hmm. got to be involved in here. Mm. Um, and so once I saw that, that's when they let me know, hey, you might be getting a couple companies from Third ID. Um, You're like, oh, fuck. <laughs> Maybe no, tankers. No, 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 no. I, I mean, so my experience in Iraq before where we receive armor companies that yeah, be attached yeah. to us, or we receive a striker company, or we receive an ODA. Very comfortable with the, the attachment thing. Yeah, yeah. It's just how do you deliver a message to folks that aren't part of your team? So, yeah, yeah. you know, that. so I, I call back to the brigade commander. I'm like, I, you know, I don't want to come back to to watch the last little bit of the platoon live fires. I need to get to NTC and I need to like look the leaders that are going right. to be working with us in in the eye. Yeah. Um, so luckily, you know, Armstrong, Chuck, you know, we were friends, so knew each other. Um, God, he was gracious. On it, it's very hard for a commander sometimes to to share, to kind of to let yeah, to, to let go yeah. uh, a little bit. You know, so being able to fly in there and getting the OCs to drive out there, and I get to you know sit with Captain Graham, and Captain Kitching, and the first sergeants, and some of the staff, and and go, let me let me show you, let me explain to you what the fight is. It is nothing that you've like, like we didn't prepare for it, right? Yeah. You know, we're doing everything we can right now to build the intellectual capacity and kind of the grit to be able to deal with that type of fight. So, you know, I brought my S two and we, um, I think we were in y'all's battalion talk, and it's like uh, I'm gonna lay it out like absolutely as clear as humanly possible um you know between kitching and graham they had some good questions and that type of thing but you know and i think sitting down with colonel armstrong i'm like hey these dudes are going into a different type fight than the rest of your battalions right going to mm-hmm. go into and then as we go back then we find out hey you're going to get another company from 117 and you're going to get another company from 520 and mm-hmm. you know um you know i think we had nine different companies rotate through the That's crazy um and some of them just for short periods of time, right? Because mm-hmm. one seventeen was a short was a shorter period of time, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Bravo, we hadn't. I think they were bayonets also, or mm-hmm. was Bravo five twenty was bayonets also. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so we tried to paint the picture so we could be realistic, and you know, talking with Graham and Kitching on, and just don't sugarcoat crap. Yeah, um, it definitely <laughs> it definitely did not get sugarcoated. Like at NTC after you came, like we 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 half jokingly referred to it as the come to Jesus talk, and that we all got set down by the platoon sergeants and the PLs stuff like that. And like this is what we're going into. Like this is what we can expect. Like we're gonna lose, dudes. We're gonna get fucked up. It was we were we were prepped. Uh, yeah. Well, I tried know. to communicate what I saw there also. So yeah. We basically and no offense to. The, the, the units that were there before us, but they had, they had taken quite a few hits in the face. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, so my impression, you know, they just had some suicides and, you know, um, so they were focused on self-preservation at the time. Sure. Um, and their sphere of influence outside their tactical infrastructure was about uh, the range of a, of an M4. Mm-hmm. And then you had some ODAs doing their own stuff that, wasn't synchronized by anybody. Right. You had USAID coming in doing absolutely nothing synchronized. Right. You had, you know, Corps of Engineers coming in doing nothing. Like, because you had a brigade uh, that was, you know, sitting up in Mossengar that was responsible for everything. But um, that 
to me that didn't appear to be unity of effort. So I was excited uh, that they're going to put Panjway under one, two, three. Um, and even with the task organization of additional units in, I had no worries or concerns, yeah. uh, especially knowing Chuck and yeah. you know the reputation of, of y'all's battalion at the time. Um, I don't know how in depth you want to go, or you want to go through a background. I'll keep going through that. Yeah. Or, well, I mean, um, one thing I was really curious about is the, yeah, you know, obviously you had, you had we had our Charlie Company at Kentrickack, and then we were at Sperlingar, and Sperlingar is you know key train. It's really prominent, and I'll be honest, it's really nice. <laughs> so it was how, how did the decision go into like which companies were going to go to which uh, cops and fobs? Um, based on my understanding and read of the fight that we would see, which the brigade that were replaced, the battalions that were replaced did not paint a picture of anything major. Right. Um, so I thought we could buy some time to, to bring a mechanized company in that, you know, will divorce from what they, you know, all the gunnery stuff that they've had to do and the yeah. can table twelves yep. and all that. Type. I know how it is. Um, and they'd have time to grow into the battle space. Sure. And then with, uh, you know, the armor company over at, at Kinjakak, I could, reinforce them by giving them mortar platoon, make them infantrymen. So they had some right. capability. And then, you know, I thought the hardest fight was going to be out in Mushan right at the the tip of the horn. So that's where I, you know, put the, the company with the most combat experience mm-hmm. and what I perceived as the most grit. And that was Alpha kind of, company, right? Yeah. Yeah. Apache company out there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, um, as the area around Sperlingar developed, um, you know, you know, that, that changed, yeah. um, you know, as the, the fight South of Talakon developed, that changed as, as the area out of Mushan and, you know, out at the tip just blew up. Um, you know, we could, I was trying to figure out how to, you know, create the scenario where y'all could be successful and what we we're asking you to do, which was not sit and wait to be blown up. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, there's a lot more to to, to setting of the conditions that <laughs> yeah. I can go into, you know, yeah. um, had family friends that, uh, were the car's eyes. Um, you know, so first thing I did when I found out that I was going to, to Panjway, um, was reach out to Kayum Karzai, who's the uh, president Karzai's older brother. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, help me understand, you know, what's going, sure. going on out there. And he explained, uh, you know, asking me, hey, what is the U S doing that? aren't they doing that they should be doing um so we had some discussions about the the cons that actually own the terrain there so i went when we got into afghanistan i actually called them using y'all's um one of y'all's uh interpreters y'all had an interpreter that was really good i can't remember the dude's name but i'm like hey here's kayum karzai's Telephone number. Can you call him? And dude, like, start shaking. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, call him. He's in his castle in cars. You know, it's like yeah. thirty kilometers over there. Give right. him a call. And 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 we finally got in touch with him. And, and so through some meetings and all that, they were like, "Hey, you know, if y'all are successful this fighting season, which at that point I didn't really understand fighting season in Pageway, right. yeah, um, you know, if y'all are successful in truly defeating the the the." Taliban presence in Panjway yeah. that, you know, the cons and the, the true leaders of Panjway and Maywand and all that type of thing that they would support a popular uprising. Right. Um, so, you know, I knew we had a period of time and, you know, going into the, 
to the fight there. I knew I didn't want to sit back and take punches to the face. Right. I knew that there's, you know, there's an obstacle belt called IEDs that surrounded all our things. So right. if we could get past that, if we could get beyond that mm. and start taking the fight to them, um, you know, that, that it would change the dynamic that we weren't sitting and waiting on getting, you know, punched in the face. So when, when we got there and, you know, you, we started, you know, our, our company, but the entire battalion really started pushing out, like pushing out and testing the waters. So how soon did it come to your, into your mind that like this area has this going on and, you know, that Sperwin Gar, East of Sperwin Gar turns out there's a shit ton of Taliban there. Like when did you start to piece the puzzle together of what was actually going on in Panjway? I mean, for, for Zangabad West, I had a good picture from the beginning. Yeah. Um, you know, everything in and around the jot, that was more of a surprise because I was, I was dealing with some, some senior, you know, um, Afghan leaders up there in the district center that are like from the jot. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And they'd tell on anything else. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd sit up there and, you know, we're conducting kinetic strikes in and around the jot and some of the other villages there. But, um, you know, they never really showed their hand um, mm. until – later yeah um so well, i remember early on we we walked through nijat like it was no big deal i mean yeah. some of our first patrols just taking a stroll and then and then 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 we couldn't yeah <laughs> well, if you remember we started a lot like the tomahawk tufan and all, all the the operations that we started really pushing mm-hmm. where we knew you know these dudes were at and they were very comfortable you mm-hmm. know they were comfortable training their ieds and their vbid makers that were then going to project up in the kandahar for a spectacular attack um we know that there was a lot of training that was going on there that was then being exported out to hey we're going to hit this prison to release folks mm-hmm. or, um you know so we put a lot of pressure where we we thought they were and that had some incredible effects but that also pushed a lot of people to y'all's battle space that <laughs> i didn't think that's where they were going to to go yeah um because it didn't make sense for them to go there mm-hmm. um unless they just want to you want to you want to take control of the market at Masamgar? is that what you right. get postured to do i yeah. mean well that was was weird i mean when we took over everything was about the 2-8 grid line it's all you know, every, everything was all west that's all they talked about They're like yeah yeah if you go west you're gonna get hit but I mean, maybe that was that was where our first firefight was, right south of Zangabadgar. But after that, I mean, I'd say eighty percent of all of our, you know, casualties, contacts was all east, mm-hmm. which was, you know, no one before us had even mentioned anything yeah. east. Yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah. the unit that we replaced that wasn't even their AO. I think yeah. the I think yeah. the dude's name was Haji Muhammad, and <laughs> most perfect dark black beard in, <laughs> in all of Kandahar. Uh, <laughs> and like he was from the jot and, you know, and finally it's like, Hey, yeah, it, it, they're there. Yeah. Um, but he couldn't describe, is it two dudes? Is it 20, 20 dudes? Yeah. Is it a ID cell? You know, you know, what is that uh, that's going on there? Um, what if you look at kind of the, again, not sure how much more background, or do you, are we just going to dive straight into oh, to, as much background as, as we can get? I mean, there's, yeah. there's no so, limit. You know, understanding the the ANA that was there, you know, um, the ANCOP battalion, the yeah. ANA that y'all had to work with, which is different than the ANA that was on Zangabad, which was different than the right. ANA on Talakan, which is different than the ANA that was on Mushan. Yeah. And, you know, the dregs of the ANA that were on Cop Lion, mm-hmm. you know. 
the soja cats, um, our AUP that were in the area, those horrible Afghan local police. Oh, um, man. Yeah. You know, um, you know, we had two ODAs, op- or three ODAs operating in the area, which, you know, in my interaction with Soda South, having trained to be the Soda North commander when we were going to do VSO, you know, my impression not synchronized with anything that the battle space owner right. was doing. You know, uh, like with a week before we took over Panjway, Bell and Bay freaking happened. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the SF kind of washes their hands of it and, you know, hey, it's y'all's to deal with. And mm. um, how is that? I mean, like, you know, you're, you're within days of stepping on a plane to come over there. And, you know, did you hear about it before it hit the news or was, I mean, did you see that on the news and be like, oh, uh, no, I mean, I didn't. Yeah. The, the battalion commander at the time had shot me a note and like, holy crap. Oh, um, man. Mm. You know, and which locally it wasn't a big deal. Mm. I mean, you know, it's Bell and by. They were pissed off. They were embarrassed. The little village to the south was pissed off and embar- embarrassed, you know, but the village two kilometers over there could have cared less. Yeah. yeah. Now, Kandahar cared. And, yes. And, and right. Kabul cared. Uh, but the local Afghans there, there wasn't, I mean, everything came from external. So getting, you know, Razik down there, the Afghan police commander for the, yep. for the, for the province and all that type of thing was able to create some some calm um how was your interactions with him it was good i wish we could have gotten him down there yeah more mm-hmm. and with less gloves on mm-hmm. um very effective in dealing with afghan problems in afghan ways mm-hmm. which is not palatable uh a lot of times but if we could maintain some control it's like the special I don't know if we had them come in the area. There's a special operations kind of ANCOP unit um, that would come into the battle space from time to time, which were incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, um, we use them a lot around Talakan and kind of that no man's area between Mushan and Talakan. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but the so the ANA was all over the place. Yeah. And y'all's. And we had to drag those cats along. Yeah. Um, which I know is frustrating to everyone out there, but if, if we didn't drag them, then we're going to end up sitting back and waiting for people to punch us in the right. face. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, yeah, it sucks sometimes. And, you know, I know that there were casualties in one, two, three that were caused by ANA, mm-hmm. um, as they did their death blossoms with their RPGs and, and, and weapons. Um, yeah, it was, that was just that was disappointing. Um, yeah, but we had some decent advisor teams that tried their best. Um, you know, it wasn't any different than the experience with our Iraqi partners, sure, and, yeah. um, whether you know the the national police or the Iraqi army or whatever the case may be. So they didn't have high expectations. Hmm. Uh, communicated that very clearly with their, you know. What was his name? General Habibi. There, yeah, that was his name. The, yeah. the their core commander, um, you know, and tried to work hard so that he'd stop sending soldiers that were from the north. So mm. you send a bunch of soldiers there that don't speak Pashtun or don't care uh, about the Pashtun. Yeah, don't give a rat's ass. Yep. So they're you know, um, what a com- that was one complex nine months. Holy yeah. smokes, <laughs> there was not one second that you know there there wasn't some. Yeah, you know, intrigue going on while we're trying to do a fight, while we're trying to collapse, 
you know, tactical infrastructure while we're trying to, you know, I think y'all shipped out like 17, 17 40 foot containers of excess equipment left um, Sparongar while we're in the fight, you yeah. Know, yeah. while we're trying to push people into the lead that don't want to be in the lead. Yep. You know, um, yeah. The, I mean, the whole Northern, you know, the Uzbek Pashto thing was, I mean, we were, that was a private. I, I keyed into that. Yeah. It was, it, know, was, it, it was, it was palatable. Yeah. For sure, like you, you definitely got the impression that those dudes didn't give a fuck because it wasn't their home turf. And mm-hmm. Well, the ALP, I remember the first time oh. I had it when they were like, "Hey, we're gonna put ALP in your battle space." And originally, the, the SF sort of commander is like, "Hey, we're gonna recruit them. You're, y'all are gonna train them." I'm like, "I don't, yeah, I don't. No, I'm good." <laughs> One, I don't want them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, two, everyone that you're recruiting, the the commander that y'all chose, I'm sure y'all met that. That fat dude mm-hmm. that was on that ALP checkpoint. Up oh, what that was his up. name? Can't his name, but he's also the guy that fired the an RPG through the side of the three two one battalion commander striker. Really? Um, so I had no trust and faith because he was a Taliban dude. Yeah, they were all Taliban. Uh, yeah, and then all his <laughs> fighters were from Mazari Sharif. Hmm. Um, none of them were recruited locally, so we had really the, yeah. So we had the graduation up at the at the uh, district center, and. You know, the governor, uh, district governor, uh, Haji Muhammad goes out there and we got the sort of sort of commander there, CJTF soda commander. And, and the, the governor goes out there and starts speaking Pashtun to these guys. And he turns around. And he's like, I don't know any of these guys. None of these guys even speak Pashtun. And you want me to, to graduate these folks? And I'm like, <laughs> oh, operating pantry. oh, my God, <laughs> who are we getting ourselves into? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think one of the things that um, that I find kind of interesting, and I imagine from the battalion level, it was like you hit the ground running kind of thing. So as soon as we got there, like shit was kicking off. So it, it didn't start as fast as I thought it was going to start. Yeah. So like that understanding, like the poppies are now being cut. Yeah. You right. Because you remember we had that little brief respite where we were like trying to do some poppy eradication. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, um, you know, we're getting that the police were taking the uh usaid provided tractors yeah. to go out and, and then of course they were only doing certain poppy fields that were right. contributing to the larger <laughs> yeah, effort yeah you can't can't raise that um, one but you can raise that one yeah um so we had a little brief respite there to try to get and the goal was get out yeah you know because I, I i can't remember y'all's battle space but for some of the battle space there was okay freedom of movement for a little bit i mean it was still it's still ieds it was the but, same with us yeah. yeah it's like the first month yeah yeah the first and then month. like when they cut those poppies and they were stacked to the side yeah the next day it was it was on mm-hmm. and of course i you know i had a friend that was a battalion commander that was down in spin bulldog and you know they're, of course they're watching folks training on the other side of the border and they're reporting and then you know then they're not there um wow yeah so um then they show up in our battle space. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, it was quiet for us until we were the first of our battalion or our company to get into contact. And it was April 25th. Yeah. So we've been there all, about a month. Like, about, yeah. Almost a month. Mm-hmm. Like just shy of a month before things. And even, and even then it was slow. It was a it slow was burn. It was a slow burn. Yeah. But within the month, I say between April and beginning of June, things really accelerated yeah. for us around Sparangar. Uh, so I think, I think that was pretty much resonant across the entire battalion. Yeah. 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 I mean, how how soon did we did the 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 horn clearing operation start to to come? Was was that something that was planned before you even hit the ground, or was that something that you kind of? It's something that I started formulating in my mind. Yeah, when I was on the PDSS based on okay. seeing the absolute inaction of hmm. 
for the folks that are before us. Like, uh, you know, we, we, we had no breathing space. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, so if we didn't project out, we were just going to sit there and take casualties as we're you right. know, making a, a run somewhere for a logistics patrol or mm-hmm. they're going to start lobbing 107s or, mm-hmm. or you know, recoilless rifles into your cops and, you know, people were going to start taking casualties doing that. Um, you know, I wanted to, the task of me was to to create it so that Panjway wasn't a, basically an ORP for Kandahar. Right. Um, there was a lot of fear of projection of spectacular attacks up there, which no one could ever really define. <laughs> I, I was, I was yeah. literally about to ask. Yeah, we do. Yeah. When we we, which, we, we which, got Kitching's definition. What's your definition of a spectacular attack? Uh, anything that creates media-worthy event. Okay. Media-worthy. Okay. okay. Kitching said so, anything that makes your jaw drop. <laughs> no, so, so, that's, so that's the thing. If you look oh, like larger, you know, as we're in Iraq and we're dealing with like Al-Qaeda, yeah. you know, they, yeah, that's jaw dropping. They're not going to waste their energy unless right. it's something that's going to be like spectacular. You know, when I'd have a car bomb go off at the edge of Sadr City and there'd be 274 civilians killed. Yeah. Right. Huge. Surprisingly, sometimes it, that didn't even make the news for there because that wasn't that significant. Yeah. But, you know, well-placed car bomb or an assassination in Kandahar. Holy smokes, just the impact of that. But the read was Panjway based on the freedom mo- movement that the Taliban and other cats had there, um, that that was basically their assault position to, right. to, to project in there. Hmm. So assault, you know, not a lot was being done to pre- prevent that. The units before were taking casualties that weren't because – they were taking the fight um, yeah. to them. Like, it, like it, if we're taking a fight to them and, and, and sometimes we're, we're having casualties, but I, I, more people will come home alive or with all their legs because we are taking that fight to right. them. Mm-hmm. Thousand percent worth it. And, you know. I mean, you kind of notice as the deployment goes on where the casualties happen or further and further away from yeah. the base. I mean, I've, our first... You know, uh, amputation was 400, 600 yards away yeah, from the like small arms range yeah. mm-hmm. from Spearman Gar. It, it, that's no way to fight. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and, and that was just based on a lesson learned in, in Sadr City when we went in and we took over like a, you know, one, two, three drove us down in their strikers because, you know, in 82nd, when you didn't have vehicles, mm-hmm. uh, we ended up taking over a, a, a mall and like, the next morning, we're getting attacked at the the wall. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, they didn't know that 765 paratroopers went in there in the middle of the night, so <laughs> death blossom out, <laughs> kill them all. But creating space, and you can either wait for the fight to come to you on their terms, or you can take the the fight to them on their terms. The frustration was that non-metallic and the you mm-hmm. know, grape yeah. rows and you know the single file stuff and then how how do i take advantage of you know the the combat power of a of a platoon when only three dudes can actually be in the fight yeah. um right. yeah you know so we work hard to i don't know if you talk, i know you talked to some of the pilots and all that type of thing but you know we counted for like majority of everything that was going on in, in RC South at the the time. Mm. And, you know, the, the G3, uh, Colonel Zeesman up on third ID or no, he's 82nd. And then, and then when third ID came in, it took a little bit of time to, to gain the trust of general Abrams. Um, you know, but stuff would stack like, like as soon as y'all would come in contact, like there'd be like 
F-16s that were up over Ghazni that'd be like, I can be there in, you know, 15 minutes. Mm. Um, you know, so if I, if the infantrymen couldn't, couldn't complete the fight, then we had to have the AHs or the uh, right. OHs or the, you know, yeah. the, the Reaper overhead or, you know, if, if, if I got to be able to give you the opportunity to employ, like in y'all's battle space, those freaking trees that, you know, tree lines, man. I mean, it took a lot to fight just to, to be able to bring in a flight of B ones yeah. to attack trees. Right. Yeah. But, you know, convincing folks how important it is. Cause I mean, how many times we try to blow up trees in, in Panjway oh, with yeah. C4 yeah, and all that type of thing. Yeah. But you know, a tree, Tied to grape rows with a little bit of high ground and the micro terrain that becomes at yeah, like like decimating. A, holy crap! Yeah. The importance of that, even in a company fight. Yeah, like, yeah. Oh, smokes. I mean, oh. so I mean, uh, uh, to be perfectly honest with you, from from uh, the infantryman that was out there doing the fight at the time, I, w- I didn't appreciate the, <laughs> the, the tree clearing operation. <laughs> the, the going getting after him, but like in retrospect, obviously I realized that now that was definitely the right call. But did y'all get to sit up there when the B1s came in. We did. Yeah. I, it was at Nijat or when they, yeah, when they, yeah, they leveled that tree yeah. line. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was a good, that was a good run. But I think for us, like it was an interesting balance because I don't know, I, I, it was 10 years ago. I'm a lot more matured now. Sure. And so I understand that. I don't see any gray in your beard. Yet, so. <laughs> yeah. I'm still, I'm still a young whippersnapper by all means, but um, you know, I, I didn't really like appreciate some of the some of the the movements that we basically like we were forced to make like getting out there uh getting out there bringing the fight to them and that kind of thing was 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 tough on your dudes right so like what was what was it like for you to kind of like balance that need to get after the enemy push them in to push into their space put get into their home turf with your your kind of fighting capacity as a unit um yeah so you got to be able to to kind of read so a lot of it is communicating face to face. Spent a lot of time, like I spent no time in Zangabad. You know, tried to spend as much time as I could getting out to mm-hmm. see platoons or company commanders or the SFATs or the you know, so I can like look somebody in the eye. Like I, you know, again, you know, fully trusted like Captain Kitching. Mm-hmm. But when I go engage him, and I could like look in his eyes, I could. I could read him, right. you know, or I went and saw Captain Meyer at Telecon or, you know, Captain Smith or Captain Brown down at Mushan. So I could read them in their, in their eyes. And then, you know, uh, tr- tried to, for every single time somebody was gotten a tough fight, tried to get my ass there. So, yeah. um, I could understand what they were dealing with. So I could fight for the, the right resources. I mean, when the non-metallic IDs came in and, and, you know, you know, all we had was that, the, the mine hound and the, mm-hmm. whatever the other one was, I couldn't pick that stuff up, mm-hmm. but we knew that the Marines had the Chia the 2.0, Chia. but the Marines didn't want to give it to, to RRC. So, mm-hmm. you know, finally got support from, I can't remember if it was the 82nd or, or third ID at that time. And we literally loaded like the first Arden from, from Mushan and a bunch of soldiers from to, to, to go get the resources, mm-hmm. you know, but a lot of that wouldn't until I, you know, talk with someone and they're like, sir, this, this thing's a piece of garbage. Mm-hmm. Um, we need something different. Or let me tell you about the these Afghans. Or um, you can you can tell a lot about a person where they're at based on just being able to see their eyes. Yeah. So even when when I come to Sparrow and Gar, um, you know, I, I'm, you know, 
I'd walk around. I try to talk to, to folks, but really it was just trying to kind of see people's faces. Sure, sure. Um, but it's a tough balance, though, um, because you can see people and they think they're kind of at their end, um, but they're not. Right. Um, mm. And, you know, you got to balance kind of empathy and not let empathy turn into sympathy. Sure. Um, you know, because I got it. Holy crap. That's a, it's a tough fight. But if we don't keep, keep up pressure, I mean, you're going to take more casualties and that right. fight is going to come to you. Um, yeah. I think, I mean, maybe what I was trying to articulate earlier is like, I didn't appreciate how getting out there every day was letting, letting me sleep in peace in the schoolhouse, yeah. you know, like, you know, cause y'all just, lucky in that schoolhouse. Yeah. Oh <laughs> yeah. Man. Like, I, I, I said it many Palace times on the, the podcast, but I'll, I'll say it on the podcast, but I'll say it again. Like when we landed, cause I was expecting GP mediums and cots. Mushan. They, we, yeah. expected Mushan. we expected Mushan. Yeah. And when we got off and I looked around, I was like, fuck yeah, like this is nice. I was very pleased with the accommodations. Like we had, we had rep for living conditions in Iraq, like the end of, at the end of Iraq that we did in Afghanistan, as Barrowman Gar should say. Yeah. So I don't know if what, what I said answers your question. It does. Yeah. Kinda, it definitely does. I mean, it's yeah. always a balance because, you know, Fighting sucks. Yeah, you know, it's fun for about the first thirty seconds. Yeah, <laughs> uh, well, especially in an, with when the IED is is so, so ever present. I mean, you know, I'd say if you polled everyone who was on that deployment, if you gave them a choice between gunfights every day or the IED fight, they'd pick gunfights every day. Yeah, you know, I can duck my head after the first round. Mm. You know, that's walk down that road i don't don't know man yeah it's it's just i mean they call it the leg lottery for a reason you keep playing it long enough eventually your number is going to get called and that's that's tough we end up having what 26 amputees oh my uh, gosh on the task force uh that deployment um significantly lower than the deployment for the units that were there before Mm. um so 26 is still way one's too many. It's yeah. a lot. Um, but y'all's effort and Charlie company's effort and the come pushing out, you know, creating the additional tactical infrastructure and driving roads where, you know, um, it changed the geometry on the battlefield so that, yeah. um, yeah, the ID was still hard. Yeah. And they had to change their tactics on IEDs. Um, y'all, were getting, y'all were getting too good at finding those freaking things. Yeah. Um, and y'all's ability to bring in kind of combined and joint fires to to complete fights changed the way that they had to fight. And, you know, their ability to generate non-metallics and they had to go to the, the recoilless rifles to uh, mm-hmm. try to make, a, to, to, to make a difference. I mean, even y'all's you know, effort, um, around Sperlingar, like, uh, you know, Ranger Regiment would be like, Hey, we have a target. We're not sure we have the, the ability to execute that. You know, can we hand it off to you? Um, you know, like, I, I don't know if y'all, if y'all did that air assault in between. Yeah. yeah. Yep. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, yeah. our ability to understand the risks that we're willing to accept in the battle space and the full capacity of the soldiers that made it up. I mean, I mean, that was put together like, that it was the yeah. sale yeah i remember that yeah. that was yeah. a that it's was a, a day of quickie. mission you know, yeah he's a you know watching recoilless rifles get closer and closer and then like launching the scout platoon into an air assault you know and they're literally air assaulting like two kilometers out um 
know, but anytime they tried to push the space back on us, we had to like immediately find a way to, to reestablish that, mm-hmm. that buffer. Um, you know, that stuff that y'all kind of helped with, um, further down on the horn when we, you know, drove that road kind of from Talacan across to, to Bellumbi and into the Zangabad road. Um, so I think y'all's XO's like truck got blown up. I think on that yeah. one. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's a funny story. I was there w- with that. <laughs> I, I went down there and like, we checked that area and we didn't pick up anything. And I'm like, all right, we're going to drive over it first. So I went down there and drove my striker around there. Uh-huh. That was a hairy time. I had to give like guns to the interpreters. Um, <laughs> And then y'all come driving up and boom, I'm like, what? <laughs> I just did everything humanly possible. Yeah, that was the driver right there. The and then driver. and then y'all like climb out and I'm like, thank God. It's okay. <laughs> Are they smoking cigars? <laughs> <laughs> like, that's a, and that was interesting because I was trying, it was just my truck down there trying to s- secure y'all's yeah. egress out of there. And yeah. like, <laughs> yeah. oh, we couldn't get out. We're like, well, I mean. Oh, we're jumping all over the place, but you know, <laughs> no, it's a well, I mean, you mentioned the roads, and that's a that's a question I wanted to ask about. I mean, we learned probably mid June, like, hey, we just we can't walk on the roads. You know, it's just it's too high of a risk. But at some point, you 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 want to free up the roads to be used. So, how do you balance like the extreme risk of putting a patrol on a road, knowing that there's almost a certainty someone's going to step on something, versus the overall mission is like we have to start using the roads. Because the locals need to be able to use the road. that frees up trade, that frees up the economy. How did, how did you kind of approach that? I mean, I mean, er, each area was different. Um, everyone had some commonalities. Everyone had to deal with grape grape roads. Yeah. Everyone had to deal with the grape huts. Um, you know, terrain elevations were different in different areas. Um, trail networks were different in mm-hmm. different areas in the density. Like when y'all. That stuff uh, down right along the edge of the river uh, when we were doing that push clearing. Yep. I mean, that train was very different than mm-hmm. the terrain that you had, yeah. you know, and, and the ability to be able to move not on that road or on that one trail. Um, so I'll be honest with you. I mean, I, I rely a lot on the company commanders, yeah. the platoon leaders, and the NCOs to, like, you know, you, you got to feel comfortable and candorous and coming back. And, you know, there's sometimes where company commanders go, I can't do what you're asking me to do. Right. All right. What do I got to give you to be able to do that? I need freaking armored bulldozer. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll give you an armored bulldozer. I need a piece of shit robot that, <laughs> 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 that, that works sometimes and doesn't work other times. Yeah. Um, well, it works until it hits yeah. an IED. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, yeah, but you gotta you gotta trust your subordinates. Yeah. That, that if if you're like zero mills on, they understand. You know, um, especially your subordinate directly below, mm. like they understand kind of your commander's intent. Um, then you got to be able to trust them to come back and go. I understand what you want to do. I can't do that right. right now, or I need the following, or I can get there, but I'm yeah. doing this as opposed to to this. Um, now, how often did that happen in terms of like your your company commanders? How often were they just like, uh, you know, were they, uh, how many times were you told, no, it's not going to happen? And how many times were it was uh, kind of a negotiation? No, because, no, well, so what you always, like, I would challenge folks is like, I okay, if you can't do it, but, you know, find a way, kind of Tell me what you need. Yeah. Give me a course of action. Right. All right. Because the problem doesn't go away. Yeah. 
You know, so if I got to air assault you over and then you're attacking back or I got to get you, I mean, we had what, seven of the eight armored bulldozers in all of Afghanistan were in Panjway. Oh, really? Uh, Are you kidding? Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, when, you know, we're, we got the only M88s in Afghanistan, you know, it, it, you know joint stuff stacked, you know, all over the place, imagery, you know, uh, you name it. Uh, like, no one. No one would say no to us. Um, so the challenge to the company commanders and even platoon leaders, I interact with them. I was like, you got to tell me what you, you right. need to be able to get after the fight because mm. the problem set doesn't change. Right. But I can help you change the, you know, kind of the, the math. The more I can make you f- help you fight unfair, you know, the yeah. better. We don't yeah. fight. Yeah, um, we don't fight fair. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, uh, when you mentioned like all the resources, you know, and we'd heard a rumor that, you know, a certain, certain percentage of all the ordnance drop in Afghanistan was dropped in Panjway. What was, you know, how important was Panjway to the overall, you know, mission RC South and, and Afghanistan as a whole? I mean, we were the main effort for the 82nd and 3rd ID based on my conversation with the, those commanders and deputy commanders. Um, I did struggle, you know. Once we started taking casualties and all that type of thing. And like, this was before third ID came in and Joel Schweitzer was the DCGO for the 82nd. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had been my battalion commander when I was a company commander. Um, so I was struggling. I'm like, I gotta, you know, I have to convince myself that we're making a difference. Um, and that we're achieving something before I can keep asking folks to, to do this stuff. So, sure. You know, he flew in for something up at the Panjway Center, and like he was getting ready to climb back on the helicopter and fly away. And I had to, I had like literally like grab him. I'm like, sir, thirty seconds, convince me that everything that I'm asking these soldiers to do out here um, is making a difference. Yeah, um, and I can't quote him, but literally in in a minute or less, he convinced me that we were making an impact, and that kind of regalvanized me because you know the, the challenge with. You know, a lot of people think that like commanders don't feel the loss or, you know, you know, when soldiers get wounded and that type of thing. We do. (laughs) At every level, people feel the same amount of rage or loss. We suffered a lot. Yeah. And, you know, it's a challenge sometimes to be able to have your character sing through the rage, the loss, all that type of thing, to push people to do the right thing. You know, everyone feels that at every single level. If they don't, they, they're in the wrong freaking business. Sure. Mm. Um, yeah, that's why I appreciate what y'all are doing with this podcast. Cause you know, there's a lot of stuff that I still haven't been able to process from, you know, that deployment or other deployments, that type of thing. But, you know, if you can convince me what I'm, I'm asking my soldiers to do is making a difference. It's the right thing to do. You give me freedom to be able to do it in a way that more people come back alive with all their body parts. 
then I can I can convince anybody. I might not convince a private that's doing it, but <laughs> yeah. I, I can convince the the company commander that they're making a difference. Yeah. And you know, that's why, you know, you know, I'm not gonna ask y'all to do anything that me as a battalion commander is not gonna do. I can't lead from a, a talk. Right. Yeah. You know, so holy crap, you know, you know, trying to get out there and have some shared freaking risk, you know. Yeah. Um so I can understand a fight. Um well, I mean, I tell you, the one thing that, that stands out to me is, you know, that the big Najat operation in October and uh, we had just, we had to get rescued because, you know, uh, combat, we were combat ineffective. We had no, no mine detecting equipment and, you know, we're Vietnam walking down this canal because it's the only way that we can get back to the, that checkpoint and uh, to see you there standing at the end of that canal, pulling guys out of the water. I mean, it, it honestly to me is it it one one of the most powerful um, images of leadership that I had in my entire military career, uh, and it's it stuck with me um, to see that you weren't just calling it in like, "Hey, go get those guys." You were you were there with us. Yeah. Um, that was know. that was noticeable even at the at that lowest level. So, you know, we 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 saw what was uh, going on there and, and deeply appreciated it. Yeah, uh, on a lot of levels. So. That was that was good for us. Um, one of the things that we've kind of discovered, I guess, as as a result of the podcast, is the kind of unique nature of the fight in Panjway. Like, not only was it important to RC South and the big picture, but the fight itself was so particular just to that area of Afghanistan that it's it's uh it's hard to like not really compare, but like draw commonalities or to see similarities to other areas. So. When you, you know, when we got there and we started getting out there and getting after it, like, how much of the uniqueness of that fight were you expecting in terms of the IDs, the the way that small arms worked, the way the enemy worked versus your previous experience and, and uh, or what what actually happened on the ground when, when we started getting out there? The potential for, like, catastrophic violence in Panjway was higher than places I'd been because it's very easy to compartmentalize fights to isolate a platoon. Yeah. Like if the Taliban had their crap together, they yeah. could have been much more effective. Um, you know, um, I mean, potential for violence in Cider city deployment when we do a raid and the next day, Jay Shalmati would come out with 1 million folks in their black pajamas and walk down the main street. Mm. They're showing us, Hey, you're 765 paratroopers, you know, this is what we could do if we right. wanted to. Um, but the actual like potential for, you know, the violence that we experienced, the, the, the kind of uniqueness of the fight. Um, I don't think anything in like, uh, Iraq that I experienced or other deployments, um, I experienced prepared me for that other than we weren't going to fight on their terms. Um, yeah. Again, seeing the units before fighting on their terms, mm -hmm. um, yeah, we weren't going to do that. Probably doesn't answer your question. <laughs> no, no, it does. It does in a way. Yeah, it's no, it's fine. I mean, well, like you mentioned, you know how how unique we had to fight there. You know, when I think a lot of units, especially the one that replaced us when they came in, they were like, "We are going to send a full platoon out every time. We're going to bound. We're going to use heavy weapon squads. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to take back the roads." And we're like. Okay, but be have have an open mind. 
um, because it, you know, one thing that we've really come away with is talking to all the eras of combat and Panjway. You know, as far as we can tell, we were the, one of the few units that was doing squad size operations, either by necessity because we didn't have enough people, or just because we were more adaptable. Um, you know, was that was that a common thing for the company commanders to change the way that they maneuvered in the in the space? I mean, that was always a challenge of you know. Like I, I think I linked in with every single company commander, uh, of course nightly, but like sure, face yeah. to face, twice a week uh, at least. Um, and if they were in a fight, yeah, definitely I was linking up, or if I could like vector in and you know link in with the kitchen, sitting next to a wall or something like that. Right. Um, yeah, but that's what I put on them constantly is all right. How do you read your space? You know, what are we doing? What are they doing? What do you got to do different? Right. And so. It, Try to challenge them on how how are we going to change? Um, how are we going to adapt? And not really adapt. Force them to adapt to us. Sure. Don't let them dictate the fight. Because um, my experience in Iraq, a lot of times we reacted to them, and we were one step behind. They would mm-hmm. bring a new TTP or tactic, and then we would react. And they'd bring another one, and we'd react. Mm-hmm. Um, the goal was to, hey, let us, let us change. Let them react to us. Um, kind of hard to do when you're fighting for you know yards on a yeah. on a trail yeah when we started to figure out towards i mean i think we've talked about it on the podcast a few times it was probably in the latter half like hey we need to we need to leave at night we need to be there on our objective right before the sun comes up and then as soon as we if we can we need to occupy a compound and make them come to us because i mean if they ambush us, we're at a disadvantage for a few seconds. We tried to do but, all sorts of things. So, you know, remember those flying trash cans? Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> How loud those things were? Yeah. Super, I mean, super stealthy. Yeah. yeah. We, well, <laughs> where, where's the Taliban sleeping? All right, go just make that thing hover. Yeah. So we got to bring it back. And it just stays above them, you know, all night long to, you know, hey, we want them to think that the Canadian tanks are back. You know, so getting those piece of junk MGSs, uh, and, you know, and in the middle of the night driving an MGS with an 88 that we kept hidden, yeah, you know, down to like cop line and having the 88 do donuts while the, you know, the trash the, cans the, are flying. The, well, the trash cans are flying and, and the MGS is like pounding 105 rounds uh-huh. out, you know, on the chatter. They're like, are the tanks back of this? And that allows us to like start targeting some folks right. that we didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, you always try to be innovative, but sure. sometimes you can't be. You got to be kind of evolutionary as opposed to revolutionary, and how sure. you figure figure that out. Um, so I think um, on the ground level, in a lot of ways, like we 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 saw, especially in hindsight, we saw how the fight evolved over the nine months that we were there. But I feel like that they always had the drop on us, like uh, in terms of the act. We come down just to the day to day firefights. We never got the drop on them. So it's interesting to see how you talk about how we, we changed the way that they fight by pushing out there. But from that level, it was like they're always dropping the hammer on us. So, But I'm imagining that from your perspective, you're seeing that the way that we're actually bringing it down on them, you know, in a way. Yeah, I mean, if you're the point man, it's always going to be a different perspective. Yeah. You know? yeah. And uh, like we talk a bunch of times, like we can all be looking at the exact same objective, but you're on this mountain, I'm on this hilltop, you're yeah. in a Apache, we're right. looking at, and we're all looking at the same thing, but we, we'd all describe it completely differently, even though we're looking at the, the same thing. Yeah. Um, so tactically, uh, yeah, can we, can we change that when it's 
you know, contact's always going to be made by the, 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 the right. front dude. Yeah. Um, how are we prepared? Like, as soon as they make contact, what can we bring to, yeah. to bear? Um, I, don't know. That, I mean, that was one thing that we, I mean, once the contact was initiated, you know, we, we brought the hate. Like, that right. was not a problem for us. But it was just, it's interesting to get that perspective because, you know, I don't know. For me, it's this balance all the time of the day-to-day grind with the big picture, and it's a hard balance for me on that on that small E4, you know, throwing Gustav rounds kind of mentality. It was it was hard to to see that while I was there. So I, I mean, I appreciate the kind of refreshing yeah. oversight of everything, and and it, it, even now, ten years later, it's bringing a, a level of understanding that I wouldn't have appreciated at the time or didn't. That had the wherewithal to to fully conceptualize, if you will. Um, well, as I as, as I looked at all the companies, making sure they understood kind of purpose and intent mm-hmm. um, for y'all, that was pretty easy. I think that discussion between myself and Captain Kitching, mm-hmm. you know, for the folks out at Mushan, it was pretty easy. For Talagon, it was a little bit more difficult because their fight was a little Ill, less defined. Mm-hmm. For the for Charlie Company that was at Zangabad, holy crap, trying to to help them understand the why. Totally different fight than yeah. even y'all just right. you know, mm-hmm. nine kilometers over that way. And then for Cyclones down at, you know, Kenjakak, totally different fight. Right. Totally different purpose. You know, um, you know, so, you know, a lot of the Army at that time kind of deline- delineated targeting between kinetic targeting and non-kinetic targeting. What we quickly realized in, you know, Panjway is we couldn't do any of that um, – you know, uh, divorced of each other. So we created this thing. I can't remember the, it was how we were going to synergize or synchronize the kinetic and non-kinetic targeting for the effects that we wanted to achieve. I wish I could remember the name of the, they, they, uh, like all the staffs and your company leadership all called it the amoeba. Um, (laughs) and and they had a, they had a pretty cool, like, uh, you know, what the letters of amoeba meant, but, um, each one, of, each one of y'all's fights was so uniquely different that there was no cookie-cutter solution sure. to each one. Um, you know, so being able to to get there and see and talk and, you know, having first sergeant column standing over a map saying, here, this is how the platoon sergeants read it, you right. know, to, to have is it Ballard, I think was the – First sergeant for Cyclone Company. I think that you know him laying out what that strange fight out there looked like. Um, you know, it it was clear, at least in my mind, um, between myself and company level. It's always going to be hard to deliver a why yeah. down to oh, the yeah. folks that are at the tip. And communicating kind of the the value of what they're doing, it's yeah. always going to be a challenge down to the lowest level because that's that's not the glorious part. Yeah. The, well, I think it takes time. It, I mean, it and takes it's, a lot it's of taken time. me ten years to kind of come to terms with what we did, why it was special, why it was different. You know, yeah. for a lot of guys, I mean, I'm sure it was the case in one, two, three as well. It's their first and only deployment that they ever had. You know, real deployment, like you know, combat battle space ownership. It's hard to reckon with that, you know. Yeah. You, you can't see it at even probably even at the platoon light leader level. Yeah. You can't see beyond the grape row. You can't see beyond the the grape hut. Um, yeah, th- this project is really what's kind of 
helped me understand our role in the whole thing. And then, you know, watching what happened in uh, August, you know, tough. Tough to reckon with that. Wasn't a surprise. Yeah. No, no surprise no. to anybody. Yeah. That's something we talked a lot about. It's like uh, talking about the multiple layers of perspective, like, any E4 that walked out of Afghanistan could have told you what was going to happen back in August. Yeah. <laughs> That's why all the interpreters that I could, that I could, like, in yeah. 2013, I'm like, come on. You're, yeah. You're, yeah. You're getting out. Let's go. Yeah. You know, of course, they were all back over as interpreters, but yeah. you know, now U.S. national ones, Cat right. 2 type folks. But, um, yeah, I mean, hindsight's always twenty twenty. How you process things mm-hmm. is different for every single person. Um you know, so I, I make sure that the experience uh, and everything I learned from it and everything that, you know, y'all communicate and all that type of thing isn't a waste either. I mean, yeah. you know, like, like I described to you earlier, I mean, I got, what do we got? 4,460-something cadets. Um, so every story of, you know, a Luxmore, a Schiller, a Navarro, you know, um, you know all that leads to uh, – a learning event that yeah. can be applied here so that, sure. you know, our leaders of tomorrow are better prepared yeah. um, than we were um, to be able to deal with tough fight. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, like you said, I mean, it's a, they're not all going to be the same. I mean, yeah. How many different combat deployments you've been on and each one is different, you know, and each one is, is hard in their own way. And you can, you can train battle drill one alpha for six years and then you show up in Panjway and you can't run it. You know, it's just, or you go to Iraq and, you know, one day you're in Mosul and then you got yep. sent, sent down to, you know, to, to Baghdad and then you get sent down to, you know, Mustafia or whatever the case may be. I mean, you know, your fight can, can change pretty quick. Um, what, what do you think from, from, a, uh, from a leadership perspective, like what was your biggest kind of takeaway from Panjway? Standards matter. Hmm. Standards matter. Yeah, we had just hit the bell and by. You had five two with the the murder squads. You know, mm. you had you know the the investigations into snipers, and you know, and for me that was just you know, I know Joe, y'all probably didn't feel it, but trust me, your platoon sergeants and your <laughs> platoon leaders felt it. Like you know, I wanted to read people's faces, but I could also come up and look at iPro. I could come up and look at anything. Is anything changing now? There's some stuff on the periphery. All right, you're cuffing your sleeves. I got it. I don't care about that. You know, I do care about that, but if it progresses, you know, past that, then right. Know, right. Um, some, you know, discipline matters and the trust is given faster when you do the small things, right? So you mm-hmm. want freedom as a small unit commander, you show that you can, you, you do the the small things right. Mm. Um, you know, that was a challenge with with some of the ODAs. Um, you know, good people, but in my opinion, not not the right amount of over, oversight, not the, the right amount of discipline. Um, you know, so when we did put our arms around them and said, hey, we're going to do this clearing operation and we're expecting you to come in behind and right. establish this relationship, you know, so you can actually do your mission as opposed to, you know, sitting on your rowing machines and, you know, um, yeah, we can, we can create some synergy. I don't know. I'm babbling. So uh, no, no, that's, I mean, that's, 
that I mean, that leads into a really good question. But what what was the relationship like? I mean, obviously you had a lot of attachments. You had you know engineers, and we had, but we also had you know um, enablers that weren't directly under your control, like the military working dogs, EOD, um, and the ODAs. So how how was it like? Well, the, shifting. I, I mean, uh, the the EOD was. I mean, yeah, and the dog handlers were, and you know the female engagement teams that we get all that stuff was, but the ODAs weren't. So that was always the challenge when trying to balance, uh, mm-hmm. you know, so much capability and capacity. Uh, but if it's not, you know, synchronized with the battle space. Owners, right. Um, but reaching out specifically on the ODA side, I mean, tons of capability, but you know, there was no clear linkage to us. Right. Thus yeah. We'd be like, Hey, don't build a checkpoint there. And then we say, <laughs> then they're like, Hey, we want you to secure it. And we're like, well, we don't have the combat power to secure it. And right. then, you know, then when the PL walks in there and, you know, gets his legs blown off, Oof. you're like, you know, or the ODA, you know, team leader goes in there or, you know, your commander did a good job. So do the others on communicate day. Don't use this trail mm. or, you know, you are going to have a challenge. Rangers would listen. The ODAs would be like, y'all don't know. And then they'd walk down the trail and something yeah. would get hurt and they'd be like so frustrated. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, working with the Soda South commander and, and they had a really good um, CJ Soda Fay commander and Colonel Fletcher at the time. So, you know, our ability to communicate and create synergy developed throughout the deployment. And I would like to think it was better oh, sure, yeah. because of that yeah. um, for future times. But yeah, it was frustrating up front. I think that was another thing for us on that smaller level was like like the lessons learned man it was an accumulation like we felt like we didn't really we weren't really super effective in the fight until like the last two three months because it took like six seven months to really figure it out like uh, on the tactical level kind of figuring out how to do it you know so it was the same on the big on the big picture did it feel that way or was it no yeah no cool it was like again every company was different yeah and then, yeah you know one company would take off to go to maywan or zari and then another company would come in we just came from the argandab we know what a tough fight is and yeah. then like so you know they'd be like we're pinned down <laughs> so, <laughs> um you know um no every just so diverse and yeah so i mean arranged. there was no one fight in Panchway. no yeah yeah that's <laughs> Even so, yeah, even on the just the tactical level around Sparrow and Guard, there was no one fight. You know, like it it evolved and changed all the time. Which I mean, I guess that's the nature of warfare to an extent. When you're actively combating the enemies, you know, things are always changing too. Right? Well, and, yeah. and and each one of y'all based on kind of the the amount of fights and contact, everyone kind of developed at different paces. You know, yeah, because you know. Some people went for a while without a, a lot going on. Other folks, it was like every day yeah. I'm in a fight and somebody's getting wounded or somebody's getting killed or, you know, um, those elements learned incredibly fast. Right. So, and then reading y'all, that's why we started like, you know, hey, we're doing this for nine months. There's no environmental morale leave. You know, I want y'all to feel special. That's why I put y'all in like uh, those boonie caps, which yeah. drove everyone nuts. <laughs> But who else in RC South was doing that? Zero. Yeah, yeah. None. So when y'all showed up at, uh, you know, when I sent you back for those like 48-hour refits every 45 days to yeah, like, yeah. get you, like people 
Like y'all don't probably didn't sense it, but like yeah. people was like, oh, "Hey, that's one, two, three. That's oh, that's really? the guys from." Well, as a pasty ass white dude, I appreciate the booty caps for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, th- I think it was General Aaron's like, "Why are you wearing booty caps?" I'm like, "Well, sir, one to make them feel special. Two, I'm helping you know, so we don't the army doesn't have to pay for cancer treatment." <laughs> yeah. so, but the real thing was, how do I make y'all feel different yeah. um, from everyone else that had a different fight? Yeah, and like if you went back there on those refits. Um, which I hopefully you got to do a few times. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. but okay. the folks in the boonie caps carried themselves differently. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not going to, like they always had their weapon yeah. when right. they could. They weren't going to let that go. <laughs> they, they weren't ro- ro- yeah. low crawling when the, the air attack yeah. sirens were going Siren off. goes off and you're like, come <laughs> on. Um, you know, but, you know, if it, it yeah, I, I know that's a small thing, but like I'm like, well, how, do, how, do, how do I make these people feel different because yeah. they are different? That's so interesting. The, uh, that's the it. details matter, you know. Like you just uh, yeah. that, that little details. I still have my booty cap. I don't know where my fucking I PC is, actually. but I have my booty cap. Yeah, you know? still with the PFC rank got it. Yeah, <laughs> um, my, my size eight, huge ass, uh, gigantic, gigantic yeah. head. Yeah. Um, well, you mentioned Rob uh, General Abrams, um, and he came in what is probably like August. Yeah, about halfway. Yeah, halfway, halfway through. through. Yeah. Oh, what was it like for when when him and Third ID came in and kind of took over RC South? How did that affect our operations? Other than the fact that he loved us at Spurman Guard. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, he he loved Bayonet Company. Yeah, I, I knew that. I knew that from the beginning, and I think that was y'all's physical fitness level or something like that. No, it was just the transfer of trust. So yeah, you know, I'd I'd work with General Huggins when I was a like when I was a company commander, he was my brigade commander and his deputy commander for operations right. was, was, uh, you know, my battalion commander. So I had a very close relationship and the trust on like, uh, you know, collateral damage assessments, you know, where I was allowed to strike anything. Right. Um, whereas all the other battalions had to go through all this clearance process. And so I had a lot of freedom. Um, so we had to earn the trust of the folks coming in with third ID. And so I appreciate, you know, General Abrams had some, some frank conversations and he invested the time to come out and yeah. uh, understand what was going on. Um, so at least in my mind, the trust transferred pretty quickly where Certainly. we didn't, I mean, we really didn't feel, I mean, for maybe for like a brief, there was like a, a slowdown right. to get to, to the trust level, but quickly as we proved that we would do the right thing and, you know, as we did the air assaults or we did the strikes mm-hmm. or we did the, you know, um, we quickly maintained the exact same freedom that, you know, at least from talking to all my peers and battalions around us, they did not experience right. the same. And it, it even felt to us that when Abrams took command, the the gloves were taken off a little bit more. Like we we felt like we got a little yeah. bit more, a little bit more. And y'all got more white sp- milk and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't, you know. It felt easier to get bombs dropped, at least for us. From, from our perspective. From our perspective, least, yeah. it felt that way. Um. That I mean, of course, there was much more interest in, um, you know, one six four. Um, you know, um, I mean, because y'all are part of third ID. Yeah, you know, yeah, third was, ID. Yeah. Um, you know, that's kind of the reason I think we got remissioned from being the Soda of North and doing the VSO thing to being a battle space owner because. You know, you had a striker brigade coming out of Fort Lewis going to work for the 82nd with none of the battalion commanders having worked there before. But mm. the division commander used to to be, you know, the brigade commander. The, the So there's some inherent trust and yeah. all that type of stuff that are. So that's kind of, 
and at least in my uninformed mind, that's kind of why we got remission to go back down there. But no, I didn't feel any. I mean, there, like I said, there might have been a little pause to, just right. to confirm, just like on that, uh, like on that day that that y'all did the Najat thing, and like literally, you know, I'm getting the reports on what's going on, and like John Abrams is coming in in strikers with some doctor that wants to understand how we're doing the fight in Panjwe, yeah. which is different. Um, so literally, I had to tell like the XO, hey, you, you got this. I'm zooming past his strikers that he's uh-huh. coming in on. I think he's coming in on the bridge. I'm like, hey, put Marn Six on the net. Hey, sir, I'm not going to be there. I, you know, Bayonet's in a tough fight right now, and that's where I got to be. And he's yeah. like, uh, Roger. Uh, so I appreciate that. Appreciate that. There's a lot of folks that'll be like, hey, I got somebody really high that's coming in. Right. So I got to go. You know, be there for for y'all's thing and talk to the platoon leader and and those folks and hopefully make a difference. And then I had to go right back over and walk into a meeting with John Abrams and Dr. Whoever um, to talk about larger things when <laughs> really I'd rather have stayed right. at Najat. Um, I think uh, one of the, the continuities that I'm seeing in our conversation is like trust. So like now that you're, you know, well into your career and you're, you're kind of, hanging out here at West Point, like how do you evaluate trust in that day-to-day basis with the guys that are under you, like in any kind of command capacity? Like you're getting that read on a dude. How much of that trust are you willing to invest right off the bat? And how much of that are you kind of holding in reserve until that you see where their standard is at and where they're kind of meeting you? Uh, I mean, there's different types of trust. Yeah, okay. Um, you know, so that's something that we talk a, a lot about here. Um, you know, it's, we got – Junior leaders and are like, hey, you know, my commander's gonna have to earn my trust. I'm like, that's a tough position to start from. Yeah. Um, you know. So if I'm working for somebody, you're my boss, like you have my trust. Mm-hmm. Until it's yours to lose. Um, it's a little bit different in superior down the subordinate. Right. And so I gotta very clearly communicate kind of expectations and kind of red lines and all that type of thing. And hey, here's some non negotiable type standards. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why for me, that's the easiest thing. On, hey, can they do the small things right? If they got, then I got it. They're gonna, they're gonna be able to, to get after some larger things with right. complete trust. And the other thing is just through iterations and getting reps. Yeah. Um, you know, I build trust with the fire support officer that's supporting you. You are, you know, this platoon leader is calm, cool, and collected in a firefight. Whereas this one, because. You know, my striker, I have like 12 nets and I'm eavesdropping right. on everything. And this guy is like losing it out of control. Um, not, yeah, so there's a tertiary, I don't know if that's the right word for it, kind of trust on, mm-hmm. you know, I trust that you're going to do the right thing, but, you know, the impact that you're going to have your soldiers around you is different. So, mm. um, well, even like on the, the lower level, like there's different levels of trust. Yeah. Like there were people in combat I would trust with my life that I wouldn't trust with my car keys. The guy that you trust in on patrol may not be the guy you trust to get you home safe in Savannah. Yeah. Um, and it, it, that always stuck out to me, the kind of like the dichotomy of, of personalities in combat that, you know, A, there's just some guys that have it. it. They have it. They're just like born with it. They're they're calm under fire, like you're saying, you know, and then there's some that just just don't. Um, and it doesn't always translate into like your actual character. You know, some, I mean, I, some guys that I fought with hardest warriors I've ever fought with. I'm like, man, like you get back home and it's just like, 
where where where's that warrior where's that where's that outstanding uh person uh and it, and it obviously you can go both ways too you can have an outstanding person that's just isn't meant to perform under fire um well, i tried to lift uh I you probably didn't read it that that card that I handed out to everyone right that tomahawk's red line card all right that was you know y'all probably read it once and then it you know, <laughs> if that you know, <laughs> you know i know i tried to brief it to everybody yeah um you know, watching what happened in Bellumbi, watching the bad things that happened in Argandab and all that, watching some bad stuff happen in Afghanistan mm-hmm. or in Iraq, uh, other deployments around. Um, I mean, if you're if you're clear on what the expectations are, like, and sometimes it's just as broad as I expect you to do the right thing, right? Yeah. right? I expect you to be honest, even if it's an ugly baby that you're throwing on the table. If it brings absolute discredit to everything that Task Force Tomahawk is doing, I want you to be honest. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like that. The and I use it in some of the stuff that I discuss with future leaders here is, you know, um, like the last part of it. Um, Again, y'all, I know you don't remember it, but it was like, it is your duty that if you see something that is wrong and you see it as wrong and like no one does anything about it, I mean, it's your duty to to take it to the next level, to inform me, to do whatever. The litmus test is what you're doing. Are you, do you want your parents to read about it on the front page of the mm-hmm. New York Times? Um, yeah, that probably doesn't resonate at, you know, for an E3 or an E4. Um <laughs> You know, but if I can get it to resonate with some some NCOs mm-hmm. and platoon leaders, then my trust that I'm not going to have you know people going off the reservation, um, yeah, you know, it's much stronger. I don't know. I mean, even another degree of trust. I mean, how so? You you come into the AO and you have you have aviation support, and you know, as a pilot, I can tell you that aviation support varies in quality from unit to unit to unit, especially when you're dealing in a situation where like most of your targets are within the, you know, the danger close range, you know, how, how did you kind of evaluate whether you could trust those pilots to, to well, the first thing is I, I went out there and I hopped in a helicopter with the task force commander mm-hmm. and I went out and flew a day of missions with okay. um, to go, holy crap, you all can't see anything. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then we invest a lot of time go sitting with the aviation task force there at, at Kandahar on the airfield. Mm-hmm. So I went in and tried to make sure that all the pilots understood the impact, whether they were you know, Black Hawk pilots that are flying resupply mm-hmm. or the, you know, the shit hooks flying low cost, low altitude resupply or the Apache guys or whatever the case may be, the, the impact that they, that they make, um, you know, for the fight that we have on it. Cause I go out there and like coin the crap out of folks. Um, we created, you know, what we called uh, go safe zones. And so we created uh, the NAIs and the TAIs mm-hmm. so that, you know, there was more of a chance that they would actually be able to have an effective strike, whether it be guns or rockets or missiles. Um, and we invest a lot of effort in trying to develop a relationship with them and getting them the AAR y'all's contacts, like, right. uh, you know, how they could be more effective. I mean, because a lot of cases, that's what we're talking about. You're only fighting with one dude that's at the front of the line. Right. So if you can't bring the bear, you know, you know, some sort of combined or joint fires, you know, quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we're not. Yeah, they are fighting on their terms. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, and that's one area where we, um, when we, we loved our air assets, obviously every, every 11 Bravo loves is Kyle was in Apaches, but 
you know, that, that was an area where I feel like that that was a pretty tightly compacted little resource that we utilized. Like we we were pretty shit hot in terms of getting air in Panjway and getting it pretty effective. Like we used it a lot. They would as soon as we got in large fight, I mean, stuff would just start stacking. Yeah, yeah. Um, and for the for the Air Force, it was awesome. For the for mm-hmm. the uh, you know, for our CCA, whether it's, uh, you know, Apaches or whatever we were flying, it was it was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, awesome, actually. Yeah, we had some challenges with some of our Navy pilots, uh, <laughs> especially out around Mushan where they're like, whoops, uh, just had a bomb come off the rail. <laughs> and, you know, like what? Or some of some of our. It's a uh, hell of an oops. <laughs> yeah. uh, we tried to employ some Excaliburs, you know, out in in Western Panjway, and like they'd shoot it, and it'd be like, "Hey, round un- unobserved." Or, or uh, where were those rounds coming from? They come from Soja. Oh, that's what I was wondering. Because yeah. they were. What's that, it? What's an Excalibur? It's a. It's like a guided uh, yeah, artillery pre- round. Precision guided one five five round. Okay. Um, you know, or the smoke missions when we'd ask y'all to like cross something and the smoke would <laughs> impact and detonate like 10 meters underground. Yeah. Uh, like, or it would land on a, a coochie hut and burn up something a little yeah, grandma. I, I, yeah. That so, I mean, that's, we went more to re- relying on our, you know, our organic capabilities for, right. for some of those things. Mm-hmm. Not, not for lack of trying and, you know, the artillery guys trying to fix their stuff. But. Yeah. Well, I mean, it stands out to me. I mean, the Canadians loved their artillery and they had 155s on Spurwangar. Yeah. Um and it just never seemed to be a big part of our fight. Well, we didn't we didn't get a lot of pushback because um a lot of pushback from like the Afghan locals because I mean, how many civcas do you think there was? Yeah. We had, we had some. Yeah. Maybe a dozen that I could Yeah, I mean if if that. Yeah. And I think lot, was, most lot, of that was on the clearing the horn mission. Yeah, and a, and a lot of that would be. I mean, you got an AK forty seven round that went, you know went through you. None of my soldiers have AK forty seven. I'm yeah, like, well, yeah. the, your Afghan National Army that was with you. I'm like, they were like a kilometer behind. So yeah. Um, but we built some trust, and like sitting up in the district governor, I'd be like watching some Taliban leader. He's riding, you know, and he's like, strike him, strike him, strike him. And I'm like, I can't because you see all those kids and that family that's right there. Right. Um. And he'd be like, "You don't want to, you don't want to kill that guy." I'm like, "Yeah, I want to kill that guy, but I'm not not a the expense of all those other right. folks. What the what the what's the purpose doing here?" So it was interesting, kind of the wasta that you built with mm-hmm. them, going, "Holy smokes! Like, you actually do care?" Right. I'm like, "Yes." Mm-hmm. Um, of course, they communicate to all the the other leaders. So, like, we never saw any of that snap back on Civcas because right. yeah. we had very few incidents of that. And if we did, holy crap! Yeah, we were on it. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. and that was uh, considering how how kinetic the fight was. It, it was a kind of an interesting. It's a miracle, really, that there wasn't more to some extent. But I mean, like especially like compared to like Iraq, you know, where that was a big big problem. We were fortunate to not have to do that, like uh, not have to to be the enemy in a way in that regard. I think I was telling you, like, I, probably the most risky one was like the when I rolled into uh, Sparangar and y'all were like being attacked from that little blossoming. village that was right outside. And blossoming the and, <laughs> and uh, there's people running around in their underwear, you know, uh, trying to defend. So yeah, I roll man. up in my striker and I'm like, I see a dude and I'm, I'm just pounding that the, the heck out of him, trying to, with the 50 cal on the striker and uh, 
you know, first Sergeant Colin comes around, he's like, cease fire, cease fire. And I'm like, what? He's like, oh, sir, you continue firing. And I'm like, oh, thanks, man. <laughs> do, you, do you really not want the, the 50 helping out right yeah. now? Um, it's, I mean, yeah, I, you know, Bayonet Company, all the companies were, were blessed with some, we had, we had a lot of the right folks or the folks that had the right capacity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, some rock stars, you know, some folks that, that weren't rock stars. I went a rock star. Um, but had what we needed to get everybody through that, that fight. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, we feel fortunate. I mean, at the time there was days where I wanted to fucking kill him, but <laughs> in, in retrospect, hindsight's 2020, I feel fortunate now to have like Brian Kitching as our company commander. Like he was, he was a hell of a commander. That's an important leadership thing too. I think to learn is like when to give your guys somebody to hate. You know, like sometimes that's got to be the case. Like even this morning at Starbucks, you're kind of busting some cadet's balls over a haircut. You know, uh, that was a major. So uh, was it? Oh, okay, he looked super young. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, that was kind of funny. It's like you get you kind of you got to give somebody not you know hates a strong word, but you got to have that point of agitation as a leader as well. Like that's something you got to absorb in a way. Yeah, if it if it if it, if it binds uh, the subunits, yeah, you know, closer together and all that type of thing. No. I'll carry some dislike on my shoulders. I, yeah. I don't care. Right. Um, I'm a, you know, as a leader, you're not trying to win a popularity contest. And if you yeah. are, you're probably, probably, probably doing the wrong, the wrong thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, that's what, you know, here trying to develop leaders of the future. So mm-hmm. focus on basic blocking and tackling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, if you do the small things, right. Oh my God, the chances you got. I mean, yeah. What, uh, What's the cadet culture like around here? And we, you, you, we don't have. You can be. We, we can edit we can it edit out, out if you, if you don't want to. You say say what you actually feel, and then we can. Well, because like I, I direct a lot of cadets to to check out y'all's thing, especially you know your the you know the the new lieutenant episode mm-hmm. uh, for them to 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 kind of you know how folks process things. Um, you got all the right people. Uh, so like in, on, on my ceiling, I got this, there's like mosaic somebody put up before and it's like Patton and Eisenhower and MacArthur and, you know, uh, Grant and Lee and, and it says the core has, which means the, the core has gone to crap. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm in a daily fight with like old grads to understand that now it hasn't. Yeah. Like you, we have our country's best come here. Mm-hmm. Um, and they all want to contribute. They all want to make a difference. Mm-hmm. It's just different now. Yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah. um, that's why it's important to, to capture lessons learned from Panjway or whatever the case mm-hmm. may be. Because what I tell the cadets is, you know, um, you, know, you are more inspirational than the four-star generals that we bring here to talk to them. Not that they're not inspirational, but it's for a different reason. You know, your experience, you know, being a, an infantryman and a pilot uh, in multiple deployments is more inspirational than a lot of the, uh, the stuff that we are able to expose them to. Um, so, you know, being able to bring stories, that resonates with cadets. Um, you know, but we got to bring more recent stuff, you know, so like, you know, we can only read so many books about Korean War, right? You know, um, 
we've had a lot more recent stuff and I think all that stuff's going to come out and some of it has started coming sure, out, yeah. but you know, to, to pull them into, you know, modern times yeah. um, and give kind of sense, purpose and direction. Like I told you, I deal with the, the brigade staff and it's like road scholar, road scholar, Marshall scholar, and right? Like I mean, incredibly smart young leaders that are going to have a huge impact in the army. We mm-hmm. just got to give them kind of a aim point right. to yeah. move towards. So. Well, I know just kind of the, through the course of doing this project, you know, our goal from the beginning was we didn't just want to tell war stories. Yeah. You know, we, we wanted to convey the experience for what it was like for that, you know, that new lieutenant or for that point man or for that pilot or for a battalion commander. Um, because like you said, I mean, there's how many books about the Korean War? How many books about the Vietnam War? When you think about all the books that have been written about the war on terror, it's, it's, it's a lot of war stories. It's, oh, this is what it was like in the Korngal, or this is what it was like, Operation Anaconda, yeah. you know, the, the invasion, you know, horse soldiers, that kind of thing. And I really do hope that more people do what, what we've done, which is, you know, look into what their experiences and what they meant. Well, it's, it's a linkage afterwards too. And that's, that's kind of, you know, but like it's something that I probably failed at was, you know, I tried to maintain contact with like wounded and, you know, cold star families. And at a certain point you, you got to kind of wean that relationship off um, so that people can move forward. Right. But we have a lot of folks that, you know, get stuck. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it takes time to process. You know, I shared some stuff from some some Tomahawk, uh, other Tomahawk soldiers uh, on some of their perspectives. Who are, dudes are struggling. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, that's why I told you, like, uh, y'all doing this was, it's helpful for me to process some stuff. Because as much as I want to understand the fight from, you know, your point of view, um, it's hard. Yeah. Hard to do. Um even if I walk in your shoes or I'm walking three people back and on a patrol, it's still, it's still different. Um, and you know, like I I didn't get a chance to start processing anything until like we rotated back to, to calf to, to get ready to redeploy. And even then you're, you're not home still. You you don't, your brain's not off until you're, and I come yeah. back, I give up command, I become a G3 for a division. Right. I'm focused on trying to do that, and I, I still don't get a chance to really process yeah. that. And then, you know, off to Somalia for a year, and then brigade command, and then deploy, and, um, you know. So, you know, when I saw y'all's stuff, that that's really when I started kind of being able to think through stuff because I had stuff compartmentalized from every right. single deployment and every yeah. single everything. Yeah. All right. It's time to start unpacking some of that stuff. Yeah. So. I well, mean, it's the right time. It know? is like, yeah, the war's done for all intents and purposes. And, and, uh, it's been a long enough period of time now that, you know, we can fully flesh out certain things. And yeah, it's, it's the timing for us has been, and I, I, I really appreciate you saying that because that, that just reinforces that the timing was right for, for yeah. us to partake on this. But I mean, one of the things about projects like this, and I, I hope that more and more stuff like this starts to come out is we're going to have a, a generation of leaders that's going to have a more experiential firsthand uh, exposure to, to combat and warfare uh, that, that it's not really existed in a way from previous conflicts. Like, 
and unless you're unless you're getting it from the horse's mouth, but like the 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 media or the the knowledge that they can kind of consume is going to be conveyed in a, in just kind of a, a different way, and that the ex, the experience is what's going to come first. Uh, at least I hope. Yeah. Uh, maybe that maybe I'm wrong in that, but the experience will come first, and then the the tactics and the um the strategy and all that will reinforce will be reinforced by that instead of the other way around. Does that make any sense? No, it does. Yeah. yeah. Um, kind of like you know, you you can read like a World War II history book, and you know that this ship was here and this ship was here and mm-hmm. the planes flew in from here. But uh, I, I really. And we're definitely not the only ones doing it. You know, uh, Memories of the Korngal is a really good Instagram page, and he has a book, and he's talked about his experiences in the Korngal um, from, like I said, from an experiential yeah. uh, perspective. And I think that that's it's important. And I hope, you know, the, the sad thing is, you know, 20 years on, how many of those leaders and how many of those experienced guys have decided to to not stay in? Um as long as we capture it. I mean, as long as we it, capture like, it. So yeah. like, like, you know, I graduated in 93. The first time I, like, saw combat was 2003. Mm-hmm. So my first 10 years in the Army were right. training your ass off. And a lot of times you're like, hey, this 7-8, and it says this is what you do. Mm-hmm. Or 7-7 Juliet. You know, I don't know why that's why we do it the way we do it. But, yeah, you know, I'm going to train my ass off to be <laughs> yeah. able to do that. Um, and... You know, that with our more connected social media, all that type of thing, why is coming a little bit more important for some things now? Yeah. Um, you know, and some, and like I tell the cadets, sometimes you, I can't explain why. Yeah. You know, sometimes you got to trust me and shut up in color. Yes. Um, you know, and, you know, for the West Point experience, for example, or someone going through basic training or, you know, uh, AIT, a lot of times they're never going to understand the why until they get further and further away from that experience. And then there'll be something that will, you know, trigger in their head. Okay, now I understand. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Maybe, and maybe if uh, those, this next generation of military leaders and just Joes and stuff like that too, maybe, maybe they'll have a, a deeper understanding of the why. Cause like even when I joined in 08, it was very much like just shut the fuck up and do your job kind of thing. And, you know, it's, it's good to get that. Why? Because it, it opens your mind a little bit to, to what's going on around you. Uh, so yeah, I mean, to me, that was the, the why behind stuff and the not seeing the why was what drove me, frustrated me so much of being in the military. So I think in, in the long term it's probably going to be a healthier, more beneficial thing to the military culture in general, to have that why be at the forefront of the conversation. Yeah. It's going to depend on the conflict too. Yeah. You know, we're talking about if, I mean, if we're throwing a battalion at the Korean border, we just got to do it. Yeah. There's not going to be time to ask why. Yeah. You know, but if you're defending uh, Europe from Russian invasion, (laughs) sometimes, sometimes having a name point creates focus and purpose. And and that's, that's the challenge for folks today is how do I, how do I focus the purpose of my unit? You know, is it just to go to NTC? Been talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we've uh, we've taken a little bit of a tangent, but we can bring it back to Panjway. yeah, we'll bring it back to Panjway a little bit. Yeah, you were talking about some of the um, obviously your relationship with uh, with Karzai's brother, who is I think he's from Panjway or he's, he's yeah, so, yeah, their family is from Panjway. Yeah, 
Um, what, what was kind of like the the local dynamic? Because that's not something we really got, like the local politics and how we kind of played into to that whole situation. Yeah, the, the, the that rabbit hole. Yeah, that was a <laughs> kind of an interesting thing. Just understanding like who's truly the the power brokers, you know? Right. Um, you know, so the government of Afghanistan's level of influence depended on what sticks and carrots they had. Really. Right. Um, you know, so, you know, if you do it like at face value, there's of course district governors mm -hmm. and then there's, you know, the, the different tribal leaders and depending on the linkage to the, the governor and whether or not the governor was actually from the province or the district that he was governing, you know, it was different in every single area on the level of influence they had. Um, you know, for, for Panjway, I think the the limit of their ability to govern kind of ended at the front gate of the district center, maybe extended into the, the market uh, right. a little bit. Um, but the real power brokers are what they call the cons, um, who are the folks that actually own the land. Okay. So, like, all those folks that lived in Panjway, none of them owned any of that land. Yeah. Um, right, yeah, I remember hearing that. And they didn't get to choose what they farmed. Hmm. Um, so, you know, if the con said, hey, you're going to grow poppy, they grew poppy. If the con said, you're going to grow marijuana, you're going to grow marijuana. If you're going to grow, you know, corn, whatever, you know, whatever it was, they were the ones that dictated all that type of stuff. Um, but the relationship between, like, the the district governor and the the – provincial governor you know it really came down to what their tribal and familial mm -hmm. type connections were um did y'all ever meet the the aup commander for panjway xanadine no that was alp that was your that alp yeah yeah, yeah we can talk about that dude um, <laughs> the, uh, the uh i was trying to uh, proposition privates to come I mean, that's where you saw the different folks trying to, to, to garner favor or ability to, to gain personal riches. Like yeah. it, it, when, mm -hmm. when y'all drive drive out, you'd see the old district center. Mm -hmm. And then there was a police station. Right. And right next to it was the, the ODA compound. Mm -hmm. Then you saw the construction. You know, it was right next to it, which was a, you know, police station being built by USAID. And then there was another construction right next to it. And that was a police station being built by Garoa. And then across the street, there was another construction and that was a, I can't remember the organization, but they were building a police station also all based on whether the district governor asked for it or the, you know, the, um, provincial governor or Razik or, you know, mm -hmm. uh, there were so many informal leaders, uh, all over the place. And because of the importance of Panjway being the kind of the birthplace of the Taliban, um, like they broke it apart, like Zari to our north. I mean, yeah, it used to be know, used to be part of that district, mm -hmm. um, and the hierarchy. Like if I if I went to a larger meeting, when the Panjway district governor would walk in, like hmm. uh, I'm not sure where he drove his derived his uh, kind of wasta um, when we do the different shuras and that type of thing. But I mean, Haji Muhammad. Uh, you know, that dude carried a lot of, a lot of weight. Um, and then you have kind of the, the older folks, like I mentioned the, the cons, a majority of whom don't live in Afghanistan, you know, when, when yeah, I, where, where are they mostly in Pakistan or no, they're mostly in UAE. Um, really? You know, so talking with Kayum, you know, 
he was able to get some of the cons to, to, to come in and we could have a talk about expectations hmm. and what they'd be willing to deliver if we we're successful during that fighting season, you know, um, so if we could actually drive out the the Pakistani uh, Taliban, the Pakistani trained Afghan Taliban, um, foreign fighters, all that type of thing, then you know they were like, hey, we would support a popular uprising, um, hmm. you know, which like weeks after we left, you know, suddenly I'm getting reports from uh, was it uh, Colonel Dugan who replaced us in Zangabad and the other battalion commander uh, out to the to the east that are like, holy crap, peace is broken out in Panjway. Hmm. And Panjway that the next fighting season went from accounting for, you know, eighty percent of the SIGACs in RC South to like none. Right. Um you know. So did we have good effect based on the kinetic stuff and the non kinetic stuff and kind of agreements made in the background yeah i mean we gave them the opportunity to to realize something more than what they had beforehand um that that relationship with the cons not even being in the country yeah that's surprising that, that to me. really blows my mind yeah. um so they're i mean they're just landowners and there's a war being fought on, on their, their land. land yeah like it's just i don't know it's weird to me to not be there yeah um Wow. That's I had no idea. <laughs> I think uh the 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 politics thing is just bizarre in that you know in that part of the world that there's so much going on and I feel like we can we can be a little down our nose at them. We just show up and it's mud huts, so we just assume it's all stone age shit, but you got some dude living in some high rise in the UAE who owns however many acres of poppy in Panjway who's probably worth you know millions of dollars because of the Well it was a challenge getting folks, especially you know, kinda on the Department of State and USAID, you know, understanding of the dynamics that existed there. So yeah. like uh you remember when they held like the where they're going to train females on how to raise chickens. <laughs> All right. So there was this initiative that okay. came in the Panjway and they're like, Hey, this is department of state folks. Hey, we want to, want to train females to be able to raise chickens. And I'm like, like, that's not going to fly. There's no way. Mm -hmm. Like we can't do that. And they're like, well, you need to figure out how to get them to support women's rights. And I'm like, yo, Right. We're already fighting the Taliban. You know, if we do this type of thing, you know, it could lead to like the people I work with daily. Right. Like doing bad things. Um, so we said, no, absolutely not. You can't do this. Right. Well, they did do it um, and brought in, you know, a number of ladies to from the Najat area mm -hmm. uh, and some other areas um, to learn how to raise chickens. And, you know, we had told them that even our good Afghans would draw and quarter them. Um, hmm. so what do you think happened? Hmm. They trained them how to raise chickens. They left the district center after learning how to raise chickens and all of them were killed. Uh -huh. Um, and not by Taliban. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it was a challenge always trying to, Hey, or we, we tried to, we tried to get people to, to buy into some American values and all that, but some were never going to get to fit. Yeah. yeah I mean, you got to take baby steps. You can't go. Yeah. I mean, some things, like even something as as seemingly minuscule as training somebody, it's like basic domestic housekeeping things. Like that's a it's such a it's kind of an impossible feat in a lot of ways. Like to 
fully expect that area. And I think maybe that's where, like, big picture Afghanistan, the deterioration happened on that local level where nobody at any kind of, it seemed, when it came bigger, like, higher level leadership, not a lot of people understood just the, the stark reality of that, you know, outside of the military, inside the military. So, I mean, that, that had to have been a challenge for you to kind of be kicking your feet against the wall and frustration that, you know, they're trying to pull stuff like that. And like, it's just not going to work. Like how, how did you make that? Was there any way that you found a way like really convey how certain things just ain't going to work no matter how much time and money and effort? And well, the, and, I mean, there was always a campaign plan, right. Yeah. That's out there. And you got like aim point 32.5 that, you know, by this date, this is going to be happening in right. the battle space. Mm-hmm. You know, so as a battalion commander, the, the most you can do is say, there's no way we're getting to that. Right. Point. Yeah. Um, no matter what resources you provide, um, we're not going to get there. And all you can do is just communicate and communicate and communicate um, and be honest and truthful right, in, yeah. in your assessment. Um, whether or not people listen to it. And, I mean, you know, did you, um, did you feel heard when, it, when you were communicating to them? Like certain things weren't going to happen. Um, when I, when, when I was able to communicate with commanders, yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, there's always a challenge when you're we're dealing with uh, kind of the filters of staff. Mm-hmm. Um, but you got to get the school, you know, open. I'm like, well, if I open that school, then all the kids will be killed. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I cannot open that school. Well, you have to because it's aim point whatever in the campaign plan. Um, so it's, I honestly just I would drag my feet and I would say, you know, the company that is in Soja is not going to put effort into – opening a school that we know would lead to more destabilization right. in our, in our area mm. and lead to more locals being recruited mm-hmm. into the dudes that we're fighting. I mean, um, well, yeah. that's one thing I, th- I don't think, you know, certainly the state department never understood. You can make a case for parts of Afghanistan to modernize and maybe even Westernize to a degree, mm. but the first place to revert is going to be Panjway, Kandahar, you know, it fell so fast. And it actually, Kandahar fell years ago. It's just been operating under a shadow government for quite a while. Um, but they just, they never understood that this, is, this isn't this is worth the effort. This isn't the hill to die on. Panjway is not the hill to die on. Because they're going to they're gonna give it right back to the Taliban the second we pull back. Well, even the Taliban governor for Panjway. So, like, I was getting a three-way call. Uh, you know, where I'd be up sitting with uh, the district governor and he would be able to get the sh- shadow governor yeah, uh, on the phone. Um, <laughs> and, and we, and we communicate, um, you know, kind of, this is what we're trying to do. I mean, yeah. it's like so far different from, you know, like I don't want to change kind of Afghan values. Right. Right. Um, I just want to create security. Yeah. Right? Uh, I want these people to, to be able to live their, their freaking lives and grow their pomegranates or right. you know, catch a little fish out of the Argon Um It was interesting having those uh, discussions. Yeah. Can you um, tell us a little bit about that? Just like what it's like speaking to the, essentially the commander of your enemy. Well, I mean, I was speaking through a district governor. Sure. So Everything's spoken in Pashtun. Yeah. But, um, it was interesting because the, the shadow governor and the district governor had grown up together. Um, so they were like, <laughs> had known each other uh for quite some time um you know but i mean he was obviously getting orders and directions from 
somewhere else. Right. So yeah. Even when we could find points that we agreed on, like you quickly shift to why he couldn't. Oh, we agree on that point. Let me tell you why I can't agree with that point now. Right. Like, if that makes sense. Like yeah, we yeah. find something like something we could find something that we could like not not create a truce on or an understanding on, but like he would quickly move to a reason that why I couldn't support it anymore, even though we agreed that this was the right thing to do for for Panjway. We're that close to getting him to to come in um, mm. and turn himself in. I mean, like literally that close. What, I mean, what kind of effect would that have had? If he, I mean, would he just have been replaced the yeah. next day? Yeah, hundred percent. Mm. But you know, as we were trying to extend, you know, I can't remember what the program was. We we're getting mm. Taliban leadership to to you know come over to Jaroa's side. We give um, him a job. Yeah, and give him you know, you know we, getting a person to come over and being able to go, Hey, look uh, mm -hmm. what we're able to do. We applied the exact same thing in Somalia later and, you know, mm -hmm. getting a, you know, a, a high up Al-Shabaab leader to, to come over to the government side. I mean, was the guy replaced within a couple of days? Absolutely. But right. did it have the effect on some of the downtrace folks yeah. on the psychological and, you know, being able to at least open dialogue or get them to question some things? Yeah, it did. Yeah. Um, but yeah. It would have been nice if we could get that done in Panjway, in but yeah, y'all felt it. I mean, right below the surface, everybody there was, they were Taliban. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. They appreciated the opportunity to live in peace if we could get them there, but. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They were, they were Taliban. They were all Taliban at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, we, we started this thing in, shoo, August 2020. Or something like that in November of 2020, you know, Panjoy fell. Yeah. Except for the district center, Massive Garden, Zangabad. Yeah. That's it. You know, Spurwangar fell. Yeah, we're getting messages from everybody. And it was just business as usual. Like, yep, yeah, well, Taliban's in charge again. We're just living our lives. Yeah. So when it, when it collapsed, well, we created the yeah. opportunity for them to see success. Yeah. Now, whether or not Jaroa was able to go, all right, let's stop pushing Tajiks and all that into this area. I, you know, but of course, who else were they going to get to go in there? Cause the Pashtuns weren't going to go in and, right. and, and, you know, you know, or when they did try to do that and with through the ALP, I mean, y'all saw that stuff from y'all. Like oh, yeah. When oh, Kitchen yeah. would report, hey, they got the dancing boys back, and I'd have to go there to whatever his name was, Zinedine, Zinedine. or something with his makeup, and I'd be like, yeah, if I see one more kid brought to this checkpoint, like, all of you will disappear. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. What? I'm like, I got, I am very tolerant on Afghan traditions and all that type of thing, but I have certain red lines. Yeah. Um, you know, so he took that very seriously uh, and did away with it. But a lot of the stuff we weren't going to change. Right. Um, so, I mean, how did that kind of, how did that come to your attention? The, obviously the, the chai boy dancing boy thing, was it something you saw on the periphery? Were you getting like firsthand reports from anybody that? Yeah. Y'all were reporting it. Y'all's yeah. dude yeah. sitting up on top of the thing. So I immediately hop in, you know, my tack and move over there. And, yeah. you know, and Zenadine and I had a very strained relationship even before he was recruited in, into ALP because he was one of the Taliban commanders in that area that would come and meet with us. Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, that the district governor would be able to facilitate. Um, and then when he got hired by the soft guys to be the ALP commander, I'm like, what? Um, 
okay. Um, I remember the first time we saw him, Jay, our interpreter, was in our truck with us, hmm. and he would not get out of the truck. He's like, that's, he's Taliban. We're like, what are you talking about? He's like, that's Taliban. I, he can't see my face or I'm done. Hmm. He was talking about Xanadine. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's, that's, that's a weird thing. And then you had the, like we, that, the jot checkpoint, uh, that the AUP ran. So we'd, oh man, we'd watch the, <laughs> you know, some of the bad AUP go, you know, attack, you know, another checkpoint and civilian clothes. And then we'd watch them go back to the, oh my the jot checkpoint, <laughs> change back into their uniforms. You know, luckily, you know, our, our, AUP commander for the area. He wasn't like he'd say, he's like, I'm a very good Afghan. I'm not a very good Muslim. Um, cause he is a drank, but yeah. I mean that dude, if not anyone would actually take action on, you know, on those AUP folks that were kind of playing both sides. Right. Um, cause he knew they had no life. If like we weren't there, Joe <laughs> wasn't there, he was pretty much done. Yeah. Uh, um, that's kind of one of the weird things too about like the local politics is how small it is too. I mean, the next village over is going to be a completely different mentality, different different, different tribe, yeah. you know, different subset. No, I mean, it, yeah, it was. And we could neg- spend a day negotiating with some tribal leader, thinking that we're influencing these four villages, and you know, well. Nope, you influence this village, that village twenty kilometers down there, and this one that's over in Helmand Province. And you're like, uh, <laughs> all right. yeah. I mean, that was such a such a weird aspect of the local culture, and that I mean, it's a kind of a microcosmic example of Afghan at large. So did y'all ever get to see the shuras that Kitchen would host there? On we we pulled security I, I pulled for security them. for them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And a lot of open and frank discussion and all that type of thing. Just, you know, um, in that kind of society, if you don't have the the ratifiers, you know, like Mm -hmm. really participating, uh, if you're not the landowner, you only have so much much power. Yeah. Um, Yeah, If that landowner's in Dubai, I mean, (laughs) it's not like they're hopping on a sat phone and giving them a call, you know, putting on speaker. Who's the the other guy that had power? There was a, uh, I can't remember what they called it, down in was a big reggae. Mm-hmm. There's a town across like kind of the open sand stuff right up against that, yep. that big, huge big mountain reggae. set. Yeah. And there was like a, I don't know, like it translated to like Oracle um, oh. uh, that lived down there. Yeah, I kind of um, remember. He's and like people would come from everywhere yeah. to see this Oracle dude who would like spit in their mouth and that would like yep. give them something. And they, it was like horse races. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, the horse yeah. races were a thing. Yeah, tried so hard to to be able to get access to him because he was kind of like uh, like if you've been to Iraq the the Saeeds the the mm. dudes that were, would wear the black turban because yeah, yeah, yeah. they could trace their lineage back to <clears throat> Muhammad and so they had a lot bigger effect on local population. Um, that's kind of the this, he, this guy wasn't a Saeed, but he was kind of had kind that of same the, level of, the, yeah, of yeah, informal yeah. um layman site i could never gain an audience with that cat and, mm. and tried so hard uh, but his influence extended you know outside of panjway mm-hmm. um but you know i mean just rc south was such a complex environment yeah. between yeah. spin Boldock and zari and panjway and argandab and um 
I don't know, whatever that place up north was, which was amazing. Yeah. I wish y'all could have gotten up there because you also saw some of the remnants of like the British forts, yeah. uh, especially as you're headed mm-hmm. over like towards Soja. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get up there and there's like, there were still forts built by Alexander the Great. Yeah. You know, I mean, holy smokes. Uh, well, I, when I went to, uh, when I was flying, I got to see some of that. So like, there's one in Kalat that's really impressive, hmm. um, but up in Farah. Like well, up near the Iranian border, there's like there's a castle built into a mountain. <laughs> like they just like it's it's the most incredible thing to look at, and you're like, why does this even exist? It protects nothing. <laughs> like it's absolutely mind blowing. Well, it was, it was it was cool, especially over there in the Shoji area because they hadn't plowed it all up, but you could see the the British fort mm. and the remnants of the British fort, uh-huh. and then like. Uh, 500 meters north of it would be the old Russian uh, combat outpost. Yeah. And then, you know, a kilometer over that way was, you know, a U.S., um, you know, uh, tactical infrastructure uh, piece. Uh, it was just interesting how each folks that came to fight in that area chose generally the same, same areas area. to, yeah. to, to like establish some sort of influence or, you know, try to establish security. Um, something I mean, Spurwingar. Yeah, something you know? we've been trying to piece out is the history of Spurwingar. Like when, when we got there, it was like, oh, the Russians built it. But I'm you know, pretty sure the you, mound do, was built by Alexander the Great. Do you know? Yeah. yeah. We're trying to. We're trying I to, mean, y'all talk to Rusty. I mean, that dude just spent more time <laughs> thinking about you know, Spurwingar and who piled that dirt up. <laughs> I understood it was the Russians, but I, yeah. I, I yeah. Know. That's what we were trying to do. I mean, based do. on like the, the number, there's a lot of those mounds in the Argandab Valley. Um, and it, it kind of looks, in my opinion, similar to a lot of the Alexander the Great structures. Like the one, the, the, the mound by Najat is very, very, very old. So I think, my theory, I could be wrong, <laughs> is that the mound was built by the Byzantine Empire or Alexander the Great, something in that era. The plateau was the Russians. I don't know, the UN built the schoolhouse in the 90s. And that's how I think all that kind of came together. Mm. But. Well, it was interesting. I don't know if you ever climbed up. So, like, if you went into Mossamgar, which I, I tried to avoid, but yeah, if you went into Mossamgar, the the post itself, you could actually climb up to the top of the mountain. And you mm-hmm. can literally see from Kaplion all the way to Kenjakak to Soja. Um, it was interesting standing up there and like trying to think through the different fights and the but you the the terrain and how it shifted mm-hmm. and changed. It, it was just yeah. It was very different than any other fights that I've been in because it was either all Savannah and Africa or it was like, you know, urban environment in, mm-hmm. in Iraq, you know. But, I mean, you had everything in Panjway, so. Yeah, you had urban. You could be kicking indoors in the bazaar one day or, you know, low crawling damn battalion orchard. commander would tell you, I want you to go to the southern part of the, you know, <laughs> the horn and go clear out there, you know. Yeah. That's why I put. Uh, I don't know if you remember the the AWG dude that was with you, mm-hmm. uh, Sergeant Newton, or I think so. Collie, Collie, Collie. I remember. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's like a civilian dude uh, yeah. that um, that worked for AWG. Um, yeah, so he had been a platoon sergeant of mine when he was active duty oh, okay. and all that type of thing. Hmm. Um, yeah, you know, so they're like, hey, you get this AWG guy. Where do you want him? I'm like, holy crap, you know, y'all's fight had just started exploding. I tr- spent a lot of time training with, with, with you know, the company's organic to to one, two, three. Mm. So I'm like, 
dude, if you, if you and I'd fought with him in, in the past. I'm yeah. Like, you know, go over there and, you know, any way that you can help. Yeah. What, whatever they, whatever they don't have, if they're afraid to ask for it, you got to let me know. Right. You know, whatever they're struggling with, you got to let me know so that I can make that go away. Um, he's a good dude. And it ended up dying, but no, oh. he's, he's good. Good cat. Dang. Um, how how did you kind of deal with the the propensity of the local like the the ALP AUP to kind of exact like Afghan justice? So I, I, you probably remember the time your convoy rolled past, and then as soon as you rolled past, you shot they, they shot the guy in the middle of the road. You know what? I mean, how did the how do consequences get? You know, and for I mean, you like you said, if you do the small things right, you have discipline. But how can you do that when you have the Afghans shooting the guy in the back in the middle of the road? Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, that's, I mean, so I, I mean, you might not, might not be able to, to realize it. It was hard to, to truly realize until after we left, but like that AUP commander, like I said, he said, I'm a good Afghan, but I'm not a good Muslim. Yeah. I mean, like that dude really wanted to do the right thing. Yeah. Um, so by communicating with him on, Hey, this is what we just observed or whatever the case may be. Um, I mean, he would enact his own. Right. AUP justice on the yeah. AUP. So whenever I go up there, there'd be, you know, local police, uh, not local, not ALP, but the, the AUP. He'd have dudes locked in his jail there. Huh. I'm like, well, what is this guy? Oh, that guy's Taliban. So I'm going to transfer him to Razik, you know, or this guy did an off unlawful killing in the market. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were all going to Razik. Um, huh. So. From what I understand, what that's a one-way trip. trip. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, <laughs> um, you know, but you only got, you know, at, at the battalion level, and you only have certain level to be able to influence yeah. everything that's going on. I mean, you're fighting just to understand everything that's going on. And even spending nine months there and having pre-existing relationships with uh, the car's eyes and getting to do PDSSs, I mean, I'm sure – we were just scratching the surface on, yeah. 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 I mean, that's one of the things that uh, I've thought about, especially with Afghanistan, but just the GWAT in general. I mean, and maybe this is like totally impossible from a, like a logistical or a strategic level, but I mean, it would almost make sense to have the same units go back to the same areas over and over and over again. Uh, not like, not like SF and that they're trying to develop it. Just, just so you know those things and you can expect those things. Like, it would almost like that would be a way to approach some of those problems because if if you're showing up every other year, every other nine months instead of a different guy, like I wonder if that would provide any kind of continuity that would have maybe helped stabilize things a little well, bit. Well, I mean, I mean, you, y'all know the deal. There's a lot of units that were deploying and deploying and yeah. deploying and deploying and deploying. Um, so as we're doing like the competition phase, and we're like doing. Um, you know, the Atlantic Resolve and, you know, the Pacific Pathways and all that type of thing. I think everyone's doing a lot of work to to get against regional alignments of forces mm-hmm. or allocation of forces. So, you know, the, the same three armor brigades are rotating through Atlantic Resolve so right. that they develop more and more and more relationships and mu- muscle memory. You know, the 101st being regionally aligned against, you know, Africa. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're getting their folks in there. And then, you know, 4th ID, 7th ID, 25th ID being allocated – in a sense, regionally aligned to the Pacific. So they're doing all the exercises across, you know, the umpteen million countries out there under the, you know, the banner of, you know, Pacific pathways or some of the independent things. So I think, I think everyone's trying to do the right thing and move in that way. Hmm. Um, you know, so that 
when private Rutherford interacts with private, you know, Abdi, you know, and I come back in a deployment a year and a half later or two years later, I'm now Sergeant Rutherford and he's now Sergeant Abdi. And, you know, that that relationship continues to, to build. Um, that's a hard thing to do, though. Yeah, hard to pull yeah, off, I mean, yeah. Well, like you said, it, at some point, A, it becomes unfair to the unit that always has to go to war. Yeah. You know, and then B, true. it's unfair to the units that don't get to go to war. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's it's a hard thing to talk about, but like, you know, when you want to do your job. You know, I mean, if you made me pick between Pacific Pathways and an Afghanistan deployment, I'm picking the deployment. Um, most people would. Uh, not everybody, but a lot of people would. Well, you know, you know the deal. Like the the first time you go to combat, like I said, it's fun for about thirty seconds, yeah. <laughs> and then it sucks, uh, and everyone changes each time. Um, it's always put a lot of thought into how people change when they're like in no kidding close combat. Yeah, you know the tolerance for laziness or the folks that aren't going to do their job or right. don't speak frankly or you know, and how that changes over time. And you know, so it's like the third combat deployment where suddenly people are more like. I want to get back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I need, I need to get back to combat. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's kind of weird. So I, I do a lot of discussion with the the folks here on why that is in a kind of a operational kind of psychology type approach. Yeah. Um, so I don't have the answer for it, but I mean, so for one, two, three, we had a, a great, baseline of NCOs that go in that Afghanistan, that was their fourth, you know, wow. you know, yeah. combat deployment. Yeah. Um, um, we were lucky and like, I don't know what the density was there, but I remember some of y'all's NCOs, Achoa, I think was one. Achoa, yeah. Achoa, yeah. yeah. I mean, um, some of the other folks that y'all had and that were down in Cyclone Company and the 117 and 520 who came with a level of experience um, mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of imbued that experience in the folks that are around them. Um, I don't know. I mean, y'all knew him better. I just remember Admiral Streb Reed just yeah. comes down and he's got that bandage around his arm and he's like, uh, hey, you getting a good workout in he goes oh no sir i got shot uh, <laughs> it's like oh okay yeah. i think it was that after Najat. it was yeah, yeah, yeah he got yeah. he got like hit by an ak-47 round mm-hmm. ricochet or something in his arm yeah and, uh, yeah and we like to joke that he just flexed it out yeah. <laughs> yeah. oh that's funny and everyone's trivia just said oh you had contact i'm like yes sir we had contact right here on sparrow and gar like three days ago yeah Oh, uh, let's go. Let's, <laughs> yeah. let's move off. Let's move off the HLZ. <laughs> so, oh man, yeah, that's pretty cool though. Having the NATO commander coming down for incredible. The yeah, only man. time a NATO commander came down and visited a piece of tactical infrastructure at the tactical level was really? when Admiral Stravitas came down to to Sparongar. Yeah. Um, so you can imagine the impact on his ability to keep communicating to NATO allies and partners uh, mm-hmm. as they continue to contribute and all that type of thing. But you know, what he saw there with, um, with y'all, I mean, that was the one and only time that you know, someone with that level of authority and influence actually got down to, to that level. It was like, interesting. Cause, uh, like kitchen and I went to Fletcher, um, yeah. you know, after that and Stav- uh, Admiral Stavridis had retired and he was the, the dean there or something like that. So it was always interesting discussions about what his thoughts were on. Um, hmm. Well, I know it was, it featured prominently in his book. So it definitely was an experience that 
you know, had an impact. Made an impression on him. Yeah. yeah. I remember, yeah, I kind of forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. I just just remember he he was there and everyone was getting promoted and get their war. Like, it was just like they waited for weeks to give people their promotions or (laughs) re-enlist or do their awards. Because, like, you're going to do it with the four-star admiral. I was like, all right, all right. (laughs) (laughs) It was interesting. Yeah. I don't know. You had a bunch of doctors coming in there to try to understand why uh, Payne's way was different. Um, like MDs or like PhDs? PhDs yeah. coming down from um, Kabul. Um, yeah, because it, y'all's, y'all's efforts on the tactical side were having impacts in a large area. Um, you know, they weren't seeing these spectacular attacks that they were expecting to see being launched out. You had a district governor and district kind of leadership that was working closely with their their American partners. Right. A lot of that was being communicated up. Um, so yeah, a lot of people came down to try to mm. understand, you know, why at least in the margins there was success being sure. experienced uh, there. I, I would have loved to read whatever they came up with. Um, yeah, it'd be you know, fascinating. Yeah, so. it, there's not a whole lot of uh, like biographical information about uh, Panjway. Like you, there's no history book on Panjway. Everything's an approximation. Can you pull a reference from a, you know, from a book that talks about the Argandab River? Maybe they're talking about Panjway. Maybe they're talking about Argandab. Maybe they're talking about Maiwan. Like you have no idea. It'd be really cool to read something that's kind of authoritative or about the, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, y'all are capturing some of it. Trying um, to you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, give me that koozie, and it, it's not a waste, or it wasn't yeah. a waste. Um, and that's kind of as I do. I do find myself from time to time able to talk with folks over there, you know, um, all y'all's effort and all the blood that was spilled and, you know, lives that were changed, you know, it's hard to kind of put that into perspective is, did we make a difference? Um, you know, and I'm kind of come to a resolution that, um, well, one more people came home alive or whole based on how we fought there. Hmm. And two, um, we gave them a chance. Um, they just didn't seize that chance. Yeah. And sometimes you can't do anything more than give, you know, the people a chance, whether it's in, you know, a place in Iraq or if it's in Bosnia or if it's in Kosovo or if it's in Somalia or wherever the case may be. Um, sometimes the, the best we can do is give folks a chance, especially yeah. if it's not like go destroy that battalion and yeah. you right. can all slap hands and say it's done. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, sometimes all you can do is your job. Yeah. Sometimes it's not going to make a difference, you yeah. know, sometimes, just, but doing your job is never a waste. You know, it's all like, oh man, I can't believe I wasted my time doing my job. I was like, no, you, that's what you're supposed to do. Like mm-hmm. put your nose down. You went out, you went on patrol, you found IEDs, you got into gunfights and that was your job. That's what you signed up for. There's no nothing wrong with that. So we talk about the reflection. So like the cadets talk about that all the time. I, mean, I want to reflect on this. I'm like, I never had time to reflect on Jack. So yeah. <laughs> I'm doing that, that now. Like I told you, I pull out all those memorials on Monday and um, would I have changed anything on what I directed Bayonet or Apache or Bayonet 2 or Cyclones or, um, you know, Blackhawk Company or Comanche Company, any one of them. Um, I don't know if I would have, fought anything differently yeah um you know you can always on the margins think of some things that you might have done different but 
no. For the most part, I, I don't think I, even with hindsight, would have pushed y'all to fight that fight any differently. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think, I, as I replay the scenarios in my mind and everything that we did, that there's there's not a there's not like a path to a better result than what we got, right? Um, which was. I got it. it. There was casualties and there was amputees and there was people that were killed, but it was so much lower than what folks had experienced in the past because we fought differently. Um, so I count that as a win. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we gave them the chance when, you know, that popular uprising after we left. Right. So for at least a while they had that opportunity. Right. Do you remember the New York times article? No. So it was like the there was like a New York Times article that came out said some kid had been killed, uh, and so we went on like a wild goose chase to go find this kid in Big Reggae. I didn't, I didn't know if you remembered it or not. It's just a no, I don't it was, remember it was, that it, one. It, it was an odd one. Well, you'd yeah. be surprised how many weird things yeah. like that would come down. Um, yeah, no, I don't remember that one. St- stuck it, out to us. Yeah. <laughs> it was a uh, yeah. It was just primo ambush smelly territory like it was uh the new york times would come out this thing that like uh some kind of local big wigs son or nephew had gotten kidnapped and like the taliban had decapitated this kid and dumped his body in the field and then somehow it came down i do was, remember that yeah, yes yeah. now i do yeah yeah, yeah yeah i remember that so somehow it came down it was at an rao and we went out to big reggae uh and they were like oh yeah he's in that field 300 meters north just over there yeah the one surrounded by one surrounded by three compounds, compounds. <laughs> yeah and we ended up getting like a rolling firefight for like the rest Is that the of one that where day. y'all got stuck in that mud uh, I, y'all y'all did some operation down there and like every single vehicle got stuck in mud oh and, yeah, and yeah. holy god that i think we spent like two days like recovering every single vehicle i was <laughs> oh god as so i was like i need more bulldozers i need an m88 i need I need more um that was early on. That was uh, that was one of our very first missions. Yeah, first kind of larger mm-hmm. company mission. That's yeah. when I when I got to climb up climb that mountain on the southern the edge. southern edge of the uh, district. Yeah, 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 and set up that op up there and look for it, smugglers. It's a yeah. There, there's some interesting things found up on that mountain. <laughs> really. Yeah, in the electromagnetic spectrum. So uh, really interesting. Yeah. Interesting, like aliens. <laughs> not, 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 not for a podcast to discuss. Fair enough. Okay, fair enough. All right. Wow. All, all I saw was my breath because I was freezing. <laughs> uh, I mean, you probably remember the time when uh, GPSs stopped working in Panjway. I do remember that. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll catch it when we stop recording. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's fun. Yeah, that was a. Well, I mean, uh, as we kind of come to a, a close here, um, you know, what are what are kind of some some final thoughts? You know, you've listened to a bunch of episodes. You know, we always, always kind of give the the floor to our guests at the end of the episode, but you know, this is kind of a chance for you to to speak to all the guys, and you know, if there's anything you wanted to say to you know the the guys of Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Charlie Two, Bravo Two. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, the, you had you had quite a large footprint and quite a. Yeah, uh, I, I think a, at some point, including the Afghans, we, we were like twenty four hundred people in the in the the task it's force. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, it's just what I said before. Like, yeah. You know, if anyone's like struggling with, you know, was it a waste? 
you know, whether you were a person that was operating in the fob and, you know, or you were a, you know, person doing refueling or distro or getting white milk to, you know, <laughs> spare one gar, or you were the infantryman out there in the fight or the, the MGS 19 kilo that, you know, is providing overwatch with a 105 or a mortarman or whatever the case may be, you know, everyone kind of thinks through, like I said, was it, was it worse worthwhile, you know, was it a waste? And, and the bottom line is absolutely not. Mm. More people came home mm. whole. Um, more people came home alive. Those Afghans that we were interacting with had the opportunity to right to to do something different. Um, so, like I said, as I as I look back, absolutely one thousand percent. The that nine months of ups and downs and good and bad and all that type of thing um, was absolutely worth it. And there was no better units to have in that battle space than that collection of third ID and, you know, second infantry division and different brigades from all over mm -hmm. the place. And, you know, we were lucky in, in that, in that regard. So it was absolutely not a waste. Mm. All right. Agreed wholeheartedly. Agreed wholeheartedly. Yeah. We uh, really appreciate you making time for us and it's been setting been, us up in yeah. West Point. And, yeah. Yeah. It's been, it's been, been very cool. Time. So we, yeah, we appreciate it. I'm glad you got, glad you got to come on. Well, I, I mean, I would throw one last thing out there, which is we talked about the power of stories mm -hmm. and experience and all that type of thing. So I know y'all put this out there, but if there's folks that, you know, want to help impact the next leaders and, you know, of our army and who are going to carry forward in the future fights when your gray finally does, or your beard finally does become gray. Um, you know, you know, reach out to y'all or I'm not on any social media other than like LinkedIn, but you know, I'm always looking for folks that want to come talk to cadets yeah. and tell their story. Yeah. Cause that's what resonates a lot louder to these young leaders than anything else. Um, so come talk about your struggles in any fight. Yeah. Or any training or after a fight, what you struggle through, all that is valuable. And like we said, as more and more folks get further and further away from actually experiencing combat, it's more important that we get these older folks mm -hmm. to come and yeah. be part of the discussion so we can never appropriately answer the, the question why, but we get closer to we answering can approximate. the question. Yeah. yeah. So. And if it's all right with you, if people want to reach out to you, they can contact us and we can. Yeah. yeah or like I said, you. I'm not on any social media. Yeah. But I'm on LinkedIn. Um, so, yeah, definitely. Or if anyone needs closure on anything yeah. from the personal event, more than happy to, to help with that.